3: Pop you pop crazed youngsters and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, but it's not important for you to know my name, nor I to know yours. What is important are the people who are with me today. Those people are Taylor Parks afternoon, and Neil
2: Kulkarni. Hello there, lovely to be back.
3: Oh, so nice to have you back, <laughs> Neil. Sorry, pop-crazy youngsters that it's been a while since the last one but we're here now so let's get on with it so chaps anything popping interesting happening to you of
2: late um no and it's been a missed opportunity really because um at the belgrade theater in coventry for the past two weeks um a musical based on the music of the enemy has no been, oh yes has been on stage, <laughs> oh for fuck's sake has been on stage called i think it's called we live and die in these towns um telling oh. the story of argy That's his name, Um, a a local musician trying to make it big. And not a single newspaper or magazine or website has got me tickets to go and see this thing, Um, which is just a a massively missed opportunity, I think. The angle would be, of course, that, I mean, I could get beaten up going to see that show. So, And and, and also, I might even appear on stage, who knows, there might be a character based on me, but no. Like a a pantomime villain. (laughs) Uh, All these kids go, Neil's behind you. (laughs) But no, I mean, you know I, know, I know it's germane upon freelancers to not sit on their arse and get on the phone um, to editors. But I did sit on my arse in the last couple of weeks waiting for the phone to ring. And it and it, and it hasn't. So an opportunity ah. missed, I'd feel. It's now half term. Thank fuck. Um, I'm, dis- I'm currently sort of deciding if I plan it right and only choose the chattiest, shittiest shops, I could mm. potentially stay in my pyjamas for a week. So that's what Good I'm looking lad. forward to. Good lad. Taylor, how you been?
4: Uh, I got four inches of standing water in my kitchen sink. Oh, no. Uh, blocked pipe, yeah.
3: There
4: you go. Oh, and (laughs) last week I ordered uh, a DVD uh, Seinfeld season box set for 30p from one of those used and new merchants on the internet. Um, Well done. Bargain. Yeah, and what eventually arrived was a CD called... Timeless Love Songs, 20 Romantic Moments. Um, (laughs) And I thought, yeah, this this is not right, is it? So I rang them up and I complained and I said, what are you going to do? Come on, what are you going to do about it? And they they said I could keep it, uh, but they would refund me the money. And they said reorder. So I reordered. Um, And then yesterday, got up, there was a parcel, tore it open, expecting to see the... Yeah, the grinning faces of Jerry, George, Elaine and lovable old Kramer in a, arranged in an awkward early 90s publicity shot. And there was another copy of Timeless Love Songs, <laughs> 20 Romantic Moments. Um, no! Yeah, so I suggest that um, the next pop craze youngster who pledges us $5 uh, on the Ooh. Patreon, mm. should receive my spare copy because obviously I'm yeah. going to keep wow. one. You know. uh, What's on it? It's all right actually. You've got Ella Fitzgerald, Tony Bennett, all the cheap yeah, right. greats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. Chris Berg. No, 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 no. It's all it's all old ah. stuff. It's got Peggy Lee and that. It's all this stuff that's you know cost buttons to license. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. In the you know true romantic spirit. Oh
3: man! And meanwhile, there's some couple somewhere that keep getting fucking Seinfeld DVDs. Yeah. <laughs> who, who are these American cunts.
4: <laughs> there's some guy's got a bottle of white wine and a yes. candles going, and they're yeah. sort of like, "What is it with airline food?" It's kind of like, oh, no, this, this, "This evening's not going the way I thought it would." If no. you're if you're giving
2: one away for free, you're going to sign it, aren't you, Taylor? With a loving yeah. message.
4: Yes. <laughs> You know,
2: yes,
3: right. The first pop craze youngster to dob in five dollars, either as a new Patreon subscriber or someone who wants to bump theirs up from whatever it is to five dollars, they will get the romantic message of their choice, handwritten with love by Taylor Parks.
4: Well, you know, I, I don't really agree with
3: autographs because
4: I, I like to try and keep my feet on the ground.
3: <laughs> no, Taylor, go with it. Go with it. But
4: just this once, yeah.
3: But I tell you what, Taylor, 40 romantic moments in one week, you old dog, you. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> and before we do anything else, some big Patreon-related news. Because next week, we shall be recording the first of what we hope will be a torrent of bonus podcasts accessible to the good people who have stuffed money into our G-strings. We ask the Pop Craze patrons to chuck questions at Taylor and Simon and they responded big style. Taylor, you are looking forward to this?
4: Yeah, I've never looked forward to anything more in my life.
3: (laughs) Anyway, more and more people are realising that if you're listening to chart music and not dobbing in your subs, you're practically spitting in the face of pop music herself. And the latest people who have joined our gang are Stuart Brown, Andrew Dick, Emma Murray, John Bruin... Paul Margach and Matthew Hawes. Welcome into the club, mm-hmm. you lovely, lovely, pop-crazed youngsters.
2: God bless you, everyone.
3: Yes, yes. And if you want to join them, all you got to do is get them little fingers going at www.patreon.com slash chartmusic.
4: I love the the way that you still do the www dot. Yeah. Uh, it's like, uh, it's, go to <laughs> HTTP. Colon forward slash forward slash all one word.
3: I'm sorry, man. I'm a I, I'm a pioneer. You know, yeah. I was I was I was doing this shit back in ninety five ninety six. Fucking web pages in raw HTML. <laughs> you tell you tell kids today they won't believe you. I
4: remember screaming with frustration when I couldn't fit a picture of Anna Kournikova
3: on a floppy disk. <laughs> Too big. So anyway. Next order of business, Pop Craze Youngsters, it's time to look at this episode's top ten. Hit the music. A re-entry at number ten for Dada's Faction. Up one place to number nine, it's The Hadley Fist. Last week's number nine, this week's number eight, Fuzzy Bear Motherfucker. New entry at number seven... For Crescent of Crisps. Holding fast at number six is B.A. Cunterson. Down four places to number five, Bummer Dog. Ooh. This week's highest new entry, straight in at number four, the Seek Lad out of show Waddy Waddy. Into the top three, and it's up two places for here comes Jism. (laughs) Last week's number seven, this week's number two, Seven Days Jankers, which means...
1: Britain's number one.
3: Up from number two, this week's number one, David Van Day's Public Enemy.
2: (laughs) He's made it. He has. Unbelievable. But the... The summer of Bummer Dog is over, I guess. I mean yes. we, we've always got our memories, but um, yeah. I suppose it had to come to an end. But it, it's It was a good run. It was a good run. <laughs> Crescent to Crisp, so what kind of music are they? Hmm. It would be pleasing, I know that. That's all I know. I don't know what it'd yeah. sound like, but pleasant.
3: Yeah. And yeah. um, we haven't worked out what Here Comes Jism are all about. <laughs> I mean, I've I've always I've always kind of like had them pegged as a bit of a man to man, featuring man parish (laughs) proposition.
4: Yeah, but with a a cockney edge, sort of like cockney boys town. (laughs)
3: So, this week's episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to October the 28th, 1982. And yes, I know, we only did 1983 last episode and we've gone in hard on the early 80s stuff of late, but I just cannot keep away from this era. It fascinates me, partly because of the music mainly because we're seeing a show in transition and... Yeah, not ready for that transition,
2: even though it wants to
3: do it. It's like the anti-village people, isn't it? (laughs) Not ready for the 80s. The the 1981 relaunch is properly bedded in now, and we're kind of seeing the presentation of the show moving away from bands playing in front of awkward-looking kids to a more event-driven experience, which I suppose is the nice way to put it. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> well it is a nice way to put it. I mean event driven and kind of conceptually based if you like. But the mm. concepts, yeah, they haven't progressed beyond the scrawling of on a beer mat of the concept and and, and mm. they're not fleshed out properly. So what you're seeing is kind of high ambition and piss poor execution really.
3: They've clearly decided that having pop music on a pop show isn't good enough. Mm. They're looking at the charts and going, Oh, this is a bit this is a bit young persons now. Mm. Whereas top of the pops as of the 70s were always seen as a bit more of a you know there was something for the mums and dads and and the little kids and everything and now you know pop music's changed and i feel the early 80s top of the pops is an attempt to to, to try and hold on to um as big an audience as possible
2: yeah it's it's an attempt to make it a variety show in a sense So even though the charts are actually in 82, fantastic. And, and, you know, there's so much great stuff going on. They still manage to pluck the variety style records out of it to keep it, have it having that more general kind of age base. Um, All those moments that really as a kid, when you're watching it massively pissed you off. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, we've seen them do a kind of a bit of a football special in a, a previous episode of chart music and, uh, you know, we're about a month removed from the Radio One fifteenth anniversary show, <laughs> uh, which yeah. which I, I I sent
2: you a clip of the other day. I wish, Just wish you hadn't no, for that. no for no other reason but to say, "Fucking hell, look at this." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the shot of the the, the scene of all the Radio 1 DJs dancing. What what song is it again that they're dancing? It's Friend or Foe by Adam and... It's just, that will haunt my nightmares until Christmas. It's like teacher's disco, isn't it?
4: And we're just 18 months away from the absolute nadir of the event-based Top of the Pops, which is my favourite Top of the Pops ever, where it's all based (laughs) around that British Rail trade that's been named Top of the Pops, uh, and is currently speeding from London to Bristol Temple Meads, uh, where Simon Bates is conducting an interview with a signalman. Uh, it's, one day we will get there, one day, mm. one yes, day.
3: but it has to be said that while this is going on, the pop-crazy youngsters are not impressed. In the latest Smash Hits, which came out on this very day, there was a letter from Louise of Slough, and it goes like this. Last Wednesday, I went to see Top of the Pops being recorded. Lucky devil, I hear you say. Well, that's only a matter of opinion because I had a really lousy time and I'm sure I wasn't the only one. For a start, any ideas about being able to wave to mum, etc. were very short-lived because as soon as the groups came on, God knows how many cheerleaders began to push their way to the front saying they had positions there. The audience had to be content to watch from the back. As most of these cheerleaders are on every week, I don't think it would hurt them much to move out of the way just once and let the people who actually buy the records get a look in. After all, what's the point in having a studio audience if the only people you get to see are cheerleaders? Another thing that annoyed me, was the rudeness of the cameramen. They gave no warnings when they decided to move, so when we finally did manage to get to the stage and start bopping about, we suddenly found ten-ton cameras up our backside with their operators yelling obscenities at us. Like everyone else, I assumed I'd be able to get autographs once I was there. Fat chance. All the DJs were there that day, meaning that Must have been the 15th anniversary Mm -hmm. show we were talking about earlier. And only about two of them agreed to sign, some being very impolite. It made me wonder why they wanted to be famous in the first place. (laughs) On the ticket, it said prize for the best costume. And I could tell that most of the audience had really made an effort to dress up for the occasion. Some outfits being very original. What a surprise then, when Tick and Tock appeared to claim said prize and then disappeared just as quickly. It was just an unfair publicity stunt. When it was all over, we were just told to leave. Not so much as a goodbye or a thanks for coming. Of course, there will be those who genuinely enjoyed themselves despite being treated like fools. But no matter how many party hats and streamers were given to me to create a party atmosphere, I couldn't pretend to be happier when I wasn't. <laughs> I waited a year for my ticket and I came a long way to be there. I'd never do it again.
2: Poor Louise. That's dreadful. Poor Louise. Poor Louise. Awful. Who do you think the two um, DJs were that did sign autographs? Mm. It's got to be Skinner, I think, because what else yeah. is he going to do? And, and Vance yeah. as well. Cause I've always, I've yeah, I think Tommy
4: Vance yeah. was. I don't know. Remember, remember how Tommy Vance treated that poor commissionaire on the gate at Television yeah. Centre? Uh, That's true. What I, about I, I Peter Powell? I bet you Peter Powell just couldn't sign enough autographs.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> but he, when he was sat at home with his feet up, practising his autograph over and over again.
2: And he probably slipped for a sachet of Nescafe as well, yeah. Yes, <laughs> Kid Jensen possibly. Yeah, he always seemed like a nice guy. Mm. But would Peel Annie not? Nightingale was there? Mm. I would have expected Annie to as well. Just to... oh, we're
3: go- we're gonna have to do this episode
2: soon, aren't we? <laughs> Definitely.
3: In the news this week, well, Labour are about to win the Birmingham Northfield and Peckham by-elections. Northern Ireland decriminalises homosexuality for adults over 21. 66 people have been crushed to death during a UEFA Cup match between Spartak Moscow and HFC Harlem. The Queen is carried through the streets of Funafuti to Valu in a gold canoe. <laughs> Joe Bugner begins his comeback with a third round knockout of Winston Allen in London. China's population officially passes one billion. Lionel Jeffrey has been pulled out of a sinking Vauxhall Viva by Ian Ogilvy during the filming of the sitcom Tom, Dick and Harriet. <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> but the big news this week is that the jam are splitting up. Oh, fucking hell, man. Oh.
2: How were you, Al? I bet you were inconsolable. Did you
4: ring the telephone
3: helpline?
2: <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't one.
3: <laughs> On the cover of The Enemy this week, Elvis Costello on the cover of Smash Hits, Bauhaus. The number one LP in the UK is Love Over Gold by Die Straits. Over in America, the number one single is Jack and Diane by John Cougar. And the number one LP is American Fool, also by John Cougar. All the fucking John Cougar mads over there, <laughs> aren't there? So, me boys, what were we doing in October of 1982?
2: Well, in 82, at this time, I, w- I was moving house. I was moving from... Um, a working class neighbourhood really to the middle class area that I well to this house that I'm now sat in actually Uh. Um, so I was starting to encounter a different kind of um, not to get instantly too heavy but a different kind of prejudice whereas in a working Mm. class neighbourhood any racism that I encountered was at street level direct and kind of you had to deal with it as it happened Um, Mm. when I moved to this very middle class neighbourhood I noticed first of all there were no kids on the street so there was nobody to play Kirby with or anything like that. Oh, and Kirby. And, and yeah, there was just nobody on the street, do you know what I mean? It was just a, a street full of old people in a sense, and us two kids, me and my sister. So there was there yeah. was nobody to play with. But beyond that, I started noticing that the prejudice that I did encounter was not direct. It was more slippery than that and it yeah. was more about kind of glass ceilings of accessible accessibility to a certain extent at school you could get so far they wouldn't let you in the golf club this is it <laughs> No, but do you know what I mean? It was a totally different kind of prejudice. And I started nurturing mm. my, my, even though I'm part of them, my ferocious and fierce hatred of the middle class at this stage. Because mm. working class prejudice I could deal with on a sort of day-to-day basis. Middle class yeah. prejudice, it was this nebulous kind of airy-fairy thing that was definitely there, but it was difficult to get to grips with in a sense. So mm. I think rather than being a gobby shite and being confrontational at this time, I was learning how to keep things indoors and starting yeah. to write, do you know what I mean? So that, so that was kind of what what was happening to me at this time. Music-wise, what were you into, now? 82. Well, I was only 10. So I, I was still um, very much a, a singles-based listener, if you like. I was listening to the the, the the pop charts an awful lot. And my awakening wouldn't happen, I think, to old music anyway. Wouldn't start no. happening until... Well, actually, this year, because as we'll discuss later... Um, you know, old music start. I mean, we, we were still sort of happy in 82 to a certain extent with what was current. I don't think we'd yet got into that stage where, you know, when we were talking about an 85 episode and just the present was horrible. So everyone's listening yeah. to the past a lot. I don't think we were quite there yet. Um, so yeah. I, I was still just very much a pop listener, a dialer disc dialer, um, yeah. a, a taper of the charts. and that was, that was my fun. I, I, I don't think I was buying singles that much. That was something my sister did. But I was very, yeah, yeah very much all about the tapes, the tape player, the condenser mic, and the charts of a Sunday night. Mm. Taylor. I
4: was, a, uh, I was a Beatles obsessive in 1982. Mm. Um, right. I went in the opposite direction. I didn't really get modern until uh 83 84 i was still listening almost exclusively to old music at this point uh because like my dad had just got promoted and he would bought uh a music center which was like Ooh, a sort of a, a, a like a really shit record player with a tape a really shit tape deck built in uh mm. and a radio mm-hmm. and this was like uh you know quite a thing to have at the time especially for my dad who was, was not gadget minded he he didn't like to buy new stuff just for the sake of it so things we did hardly had any records <laughs> so <laughs> we had to <laughs> yes. borrow record but all the family would come around lending their old albums mm. to us right. to tape um so that they could listen to it on their portable tape players you see um, right. so we our house was suddenly full of like Killing music in other words. <laughs> so we were killing music. And in the course of killing music, uh it awakened a lifelong love of music in me. Mm. Uh, mm. so suddenly we had all the Beatles albums in the house. Uh and uh-huh. and all the albums by Sky, but I didn't really, <laughs> didn't really take to that.
1: Um
4: I think that was my dad's mate from work. Uh but so yeah, so just um Listening exclusively to Beatles records, but uh, with early 80s Dolby on it. So it was like if the Beatles were in a swimming pool. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) Tapes were were so important at this stage. I I would say in 8180 having a tape player I'm not saying it was an esoteric kind of exotic product but not that many people had them whereas by Mm. 82 I think most people either had a music centre or a tape to tape machine or some sort of tape player it was
3: all about the tape to tape
2: wasn't it yeah oh man having a tape to tape changed everything suddenly suddenly you just did not need the record industry you just needed a library and and you'd be alright so yeah tapes were massively important in 82 I was absolutely
3: heartbroken about the jam splitting up because you know they were my band and it it's one of the few occasions where a band splits up and it really means something because more often than not you kind of like go off that band and they go oh well they we might as well split up then uh, yeah absolutely heartbroken and uh, yeah everyone at school knew it and uh, everyone at school kind of enjoyed it
2: <laughs> what was the, there was what was the timing of that out because i remember it being announced and when did the final tube appearance happen was that like quite it's a it's a week away it's
3: a it's, it, well yeah it's a week and a day away right. apparently what was going to happen was paul weller decided to split the band up he told them and uh, they were he was going to announce it on on the tube ah uh, but kind of like news leaked out mm-hmm. I believe the enemy we've just talked about that had jam split up on the cover, and there were in the latest smash hits there were rumours that the jam was splitting up. So yeah, it was it was definitely known about by then, and uh, yeah, I mean I, I just had the piss ripped out of me in school, <laughs> and uh, there was one lad, uh, this big fucking skinhead. Uh, And for weeks and weeks and weeks, he would just come up to me and just stare me in the face and sing We're Jamming in the style of Bob Marley and the Whalers and then laugh to himself endlessly. And about 20 years ago, I kind of like saw him in a pub and he didn't see me. And I noticed he had this massive scar across his face. And I just laughed to myself and thought, ha, good. (laughs) So is you fucking right?
2: Oh, poor you. Because, I mean, so much snot and tears on so many Parkers. And and, and this explains (laughs) why. Yeah, I mean, Beat Surrender just went straight to number one, didn't it? I remember that week. Yeah. So, what else was on telly
3: today? Well, BBC One starts the day with schools programmes, then shuts down for an hour before the news, then Pebble Mill at One, Camberwick Green, You and Me, and more schools programmes. After regional news in your area, it's Play School, Mighty Mouse... Gobolino the Witch's Cat in Jackanore, Huckleberry Finn and His Friends, John Craven's News Round, Blue Peter, The Evening News, Regional News in Your Area, and they've just finished. What else? Tomorrow's World. BBC Two kicks off with Play School and then shuts down for three and a half hours before roaring back with three hours of Australia versus Wales in the State Express World Team Snooker Classic <laughs> from Reading fucking hell snooker (laughs) then it's the something else debates where young adults from Rochdale talk about whether their generation have enough say in the things that affect their (laughs) lives spoiler alert no (laughs) unemployment yeah being able to drink in pubs Followed by the final episode of Fighter Pilot, Sport of Kings, where an RAF student jet pilot learns how to drop bombs on folk. They're currently screening the Ox <laughs> Fraud incident, a documentary about a recent DHSS operation on social security fraud. ITV has started at 9.30 with schools programmes, followed by The ARC Stories, Get Up and Go and The Sullivans, followed by The News at One, Contrasts, a+, plus the new and funker Afternoon+, plus, then the drama series Strangers, the John Junkin quiz show Definition, the cartoon series Aubrey, Vicky the Viking, Father Murphy, then the news at 5.45, Kevin Banks is angry in Crossroads, regional news in your area, and they're just finishing another episode of Emmerdale Farm, where Mr Wilkes has a go at Joe Sugden about his dumping contract. Channel Four starts five days from today. Ooh. were you excited about that, chaps?
2: Yeah, I was. I, rem- I remember the, the, you know, the computer graphics of the, yes. the first Channel Four. I remember just being astonished by yes. those. I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I was intrigued by Channel Four, and 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 as the decade would progress. Mm. Even though, you know, I've got a lot of memorable moments from BBC and ITV, obviously. Um, Channel 4 provided a few just really strange moments that are now unfindable in a way. And it's not just because they've disappeared off YouTube. There are things that I can't remember whether I dreamt them or not. I remember (laughs) seeing a drama where a guy trapped a ghost and ate it. And it and it was it was twenty minutes long, and I distinctly remember this. And this can't have been put in there by my own imagination. No. It must have happened, but I can't find hide nor hair of it now.
4: Yeah, we couldn't get the signal on the telly. Yeah, because the aerial was pointed the wrong way. But we had a black and white portable that I'd got That's in my right, room, yeah. um, and that had a rabbit ears on it, so you could point it any direction you like. So I could get a very grainy oh, black and white test nice. card. You got all the the do- Great triangle films then. Uh, Yeah, a little later. But you see, I had to watch them all in my room with the sound turned down to basically zero. (laughs) Um, Just sort of squinting through the grain. But it was like the moon landing to me, Mm. you know, like another TV channel. I'll never forget the big day. Where I was like, right here it is. It came on. It was like da 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 da. It's like this is a a new era in television. And then it it was Countdown. Yes. Uh, (laughs) All right. And and after that, it was some kind of keep fit program. (laughs) I literally thought it was going to play the jingle, and then the next thing that come on would be hardcore pornography, (laughs)
1: like
4: featuring like Lenin or something. (laughs) That was the impression that we were going to get. Um it was basically that it was gonna be uh Lenin bumming a rastafarian in close
2: up. <laughs> But nothing was private then, like like Taylor says, you had to you had to watch it with the sound down. Mm. I, I'd say this is a pre-headphones age in a sense it is, because it, headphones did exist, but they were massive. Yes. They were like huge things that were basically the size of your head. Yes, um, and not many people had them. Um, the rise of the Walkman, I would say, is still about a year or two off. Yeah. So anything you wanted to watch, yeah, would have to be public. You couldn't really keep things quiet no. except apart from obviously turning the volume down.
3: Yeah. I mean, I was. Frothing at the gash for fucking Channel 4. I really was. Just like a, a, a new TV channel.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like
3: Taylor, you know, our aerial was pointed the wrong way. And I just put my foot down. As soon as I heard that the jam were going to be on the tube, I put my foot down and said, early Christmas hmm. present, new aerial. What a fucking strange thing for a 14-year-old lad to ask for, <laughs> a, a new TV aerial. <laughs> and that night when the first episode of the tube came on, it was like, "Mom, you're going to the bingo. Dad, you're going to the pub. Our Trey said, just fuck off out, leave me alone to commune with my gods <laughs> And uh yeah, and I look back at it now and it is the worst jam gig they probably ever did. It's 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 really piss poor gig but it was mm. my only chance to
2: see the jam I was never going to see them live but but and of course every single thing on telly at this point 82 is evanescent mm. it goes you get a one-shot deal it's shown and that's it I don't think anyone had a video yeah. player that I knew anyway or a video recorder. I'd heard, yeah well one or two one or two people on our street did but yeah I mean we certainly didn't so kind of everything you saw on telly yeah. it, it was a one-shot deal and you never got a chance to see yeah. it again
3: yeah, and, and the other thing about the Channel 4, I mean, I watched the whole of the first day, and uh, at the end of the night, I remember my dad coming back from the pub and he, to find me sitting in his armchair watching a feminist theatre group um, <laughs> singing songs about smashing the patriarchy or something like that, uh, including uh, Juliet Bravo, she was in it. <laughs> and my dad just looked at it and looked at me, and his doubts started to uh, <laughs> arise about what kind of person his son was turning into. (laughs) My dad fucking hated Channel 4. Yeah, yeah. my parents weren't very impressed either.
2: No. I hate Channel 4 now, obviously. Yeah,
3: I fucking despise Channel
2: 4 now. It's a hateful station. It's got a cruel, nasty edge to it. Yeah, Yeah, it's a
3: Daily Mail for sucky girls.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: All right then, Pop Crazy Youngsters, it's time to plunge into October of 1982. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. <laughs> it's October the 28th, 1982 and top of the pops is still persisting with its special episodes tonight we're being treated to a halloween episode even though it's three nights away from halloween and because it's 1982 halloween means pretty much fuck all in the general (laughs) scheme of things we're in for a night of horror here aren't we
2: chaps oh god yes oh god yes I mean, yeah. true, true. I mean, true horror. Uh, it, it, yeah. It's odd because obviously none of it's horrifying in a horror film sense. No, but in its shitness, it, it's mm. horrifying. And and there there were some jarring moments of true disturbance in this episode. Not in, <laughs> yes, not are. intended, but no. all the more disturbing because they're not intended.
3: I mean, I, you you were a bit younger than me, but I remember growing up and Halloween meant fuck all. It was just that little thing that you got through. Before the real fucking event, which was bonfire night.
2: Yeah, I mean, it did. It didn't mean. I mean, we did go trick or treating, but no costumes. Yeah. It was just no. kids dressed in normal clothes begging for sweets, basically. Yes. Um. Occasionally yes. chucking eggs at windows. Um. Yes. You know that scary cunt in every neighbourhood who wouldn't give you your ball back if it went in their in their lawn. And of yes. course, and apart from that, maybe it might have meant apple bobbing which is always a lovely chance for family members to imagine what it would be like to watch you drown. But yes. um, apart from that, it didn't mean anything. <laughs> this whole thing of costumes, this whole thing of pumpkins. Um, I yeah. had to fucking buy a pumpkin this week because my, my oh. kids expect to carve a pumpkin. I was yeah. even debating in Morrison's whether to buy a Rambo pumpkin. Have you seen these? They're no. Fucking, what the fuck's that? It, it's called a Rambo pumpkin. I have no idea why. Is
4: that Rambo the uh, French poet? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, Verlaine pumpkin. No, it was a, it's, a, it's a Rambo pumpkin spelt as in first blood, but it's fucking enormous, you know. It's just like, the, it, it, it's huge. It's about 20 pumpkins in one pumpkin. But I've had to buy a pumpkin this year, um, which my daughter will expect to carve towards Halloween. We didn't do any of that back then. Didn't do pumpkins, didn't do oh. decorations. I remember um, um, friends from the north telling me that Mischief Night was quite near... Um, Uh, Halloween. We never did mischief night or anything like that. No, there was a generally accepted increased level of hooliganness on Halloween night, but that's about it. I mean, I was getting into horror definitely through, you know, the pan horror story books, and also, of course, as as previously mentioned, Central's um, Central TVs. Um, let's fret together strand. Yes. Of, of, not in movies. And I was getting scared by horror, don't get me wrong, but Halloween meant fuck all to me.
3: Yeah. Because, I mean, we did that kind of shit, same as you, Neil. When we, we'd knock on the door and go, trick or tree, yeah, money or sweet, <laughs> and then get told to fuck off. Mm. And that was our Halloween.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, maybe um, your teacher at school would do some silhouette cutouts of witches to put on the windows. Mm-hmm. And if you were younger still, I mean, Halloween, when I was a kid, just meant your parents trying to get you to fuck off to bed even earlier than usual so they could uh, get the feet up and watch at the Sweeney or something.
4: <laughs> well, I definitely remember a big shift in the supposed importance or the perceived significance of Halloween mm. uh, round about this time, yeah. about 82 or so. It was basically, yeah, when it went American. Mm. But um, E.T., isn't it? Yeah. Well, it became another excuse for kids to ask for sweets and swap out English words for American words. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, ancient British culture for American culture. It's not like in our day where we We'd just gather quietly in our homes and do some scrying, <laughs> <laughs> bit of bit of bit of mumming, yeah. and uh, you know feast on dried fruits and seeds. Yeah, you know, take it easy. We'd save we'd save the big celebration for sowing. Yeah, um, do a bit of wassling <laughs> then. Yeah, yeah. All this trick or treat, trick or treat. It's called guising. You yes. traitorous cunt. Yeah, get you get you get you stretched out milk soaked sheep flesh over your face and <laughs> fuck off out of
1: it.
2: Although at the age of ten, I, I, I should say I was getting massively interested in the supernatural and, and that side of mm. things. Mainly through reading um really shit thick um Reader's Digest books about the about the unknown and believing yeah. all that yeah. shit about Bawley cool. rectory and things like that. But um Yeah, and it's that that that, that bloke's dead
4: mother in law in the back of his car and uh <laughs> the Lady on the stairs, all hmm. these these terrifying fakes yeah. that, that tormented our childhood. Yeah,
2: I mean, I, yeah. I I remember being fucking scared by horror movies to the point of yeah, not being able to sleep because things like The Omen were starting to get shown on te- on telly. Yeah, and Carrie. And I remember a, a screening of the 1979 version of Dracula with Frank Langella that just basically meant I didn't sleep for fucking two weeks. Um, mm. So horror was really important. And those uh, I can't emphasise enough the power of those pan-horror stories collections uh, from the yeah. library. I was obsessed with those. But Halloween, pfft, no. I, I mean, no. I think you, you mentioned it, Al, that... E.T. does come along later this year to, to Americanify yeah. all our Halloweens.
3: I thought that the modern British Halloween stemmed directly from E.T. Mm. But I saw that, you know, we saw this episode and it's it's a, it's a good month before E.T. comes out. But yeah. then again, you know, I know lots of mates who had a pirated copy of E.T. Mm. So, you know, yeah. I'm still blaming that little
2: cunt for all this. <laughs> Because previously, that, of course, the only horror thing you could have seen... Do you remember, in Argos catalogs around about 81, um, 80, you could buy movie projectors. And one of the films yes. that you could buy was always The Devil Rides Out. Um, mm. You could buy it. So that was the only other way you could yeah. get to see that kind of shit. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. We Halloween, no, wasn't done.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: See, what's weird is that now, because I live in London, it doesn't really happen again. Yeah because you don't get a lot of kids out trick-or-treating and stuff no. like this, because you Thank never God. know. So really, it's just uh, it's just pissed students staggering around, yeah. Dressed, yeah. As, dressed as middle-class zombies. And, yeah, well,
3: um, well if, if, they're blokes, if they're blokes, the girls have to dress up as a sexy something.
4: Yeah, or an, an, like an unfit Harley Quinn, you know. And, <laughs> so yes. just, and it's just me shut inside with the cat, watching video nasties yeah. on my own. Um, you look, yeah. fretting, fretting that it's my half birthday, so I'm closing <laughs> oh, in, on, oh. closing in on the next number. So, uh, yeah, authentically <laughs> scary.
2: I'm at the coal face for this shit because I have to take kids trick or treating, including my grandkids, and you know yeah. they get all they get oh, all top and all that. It's, it's ever so cute, but what um, disappoints yeah. me in a way is how many grown-ups take it seriously as well, to the point of, of, kind of <laughs> you know, decorating the houses and answering the door in these amazing costumes. you know what I mean? Do you, do you remember, Al? I'm sure you do. Do you remember that episode of Roseanne? where it's a Halloween episode yeah. and they get so dressed up. And I remember watching that just thinking, fucking hell, that'll never yeah. happen here. That is what is happening here now. The, the, and, and it's a big thing. And, and, you know, there's deeper things to talk about in terms of basically the in, infantilisation of our culture, the rise of the geek. It's a big, big problem. Um, so, so it's not just kids pushing this agenda at the moment. It's fucking grown-ups as yeah. well. It's very disappointing. Yes. There's a whole fucking aisle of your supermarket right now. Fuck Halloween. Yeah! I mean, devoted to Halloween. Not only in terms of costumes, but everyone feels that they've got to stock up on enough Haribo. Weeks before. Yeah, yeah. If
3: I've got a fucking load of toughies in my arse, there's only one mouth they're going into. Got some fucking <laughs> snotty nosed little fucker down the street. <laughs> But I mean, yeah, why, Why? well, I was going to say, why is Top of the Pops doing this? That's,
2: that's an interesting question. Why are they doing this?
3: And why aren't they doing a Bonfire Night special the week after?
2: Because Bonfire Night's more difficult to pitch. Fundamentally a celebration of religious hatred, so I don't yeah, know, it's but, more difficult to but
3: do. But no, it would have been brilliant. Imagine you know all the audience being given sparklers and fireworks and, and at the end they, they put DLT on a fucking pyre and we watch his juices spitting on it.
2: <laughs> I fucking, That'd be fucking brilliant. I loved Bonfire Night, I must admit, in contrast yeah. to Halloween. Mainly because of one serpentine memory of, of um, when we were living at the old people's home. Um, you know, usual firework safety back then. Um, basically mm. stick a rocket in a bottle and hope for the best. And, of course, mm. the bottle fell over and the rocket was pointing at all yes. these assembled old folks watching this display. <laughs> and it just shot off and it genuinely grazed this this woman's sort of cheek who had been born in the previous century, you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah I loved Bonfire Night, but Halloween I was less keen on. I did do the trick-or-treating, but just to get sweet sound I didn't dress yeah, up did. at all. Who, who the fuck would? Of course you and did. And what parent, anyway, yeah. would spend... F- I mean, now, you know, there's kids taking their parents to shops, I want this Halloween costume. It's like fucking World Book Day where you've got to dress your kid up as some sort of character. It's it's yeah. just horrible. As a parent at the moment, you feel pressured massively into doing all this shit. And it's just prizing yeah. shit out of your wallet, basically.
3: And of course, you know, you could get you could get money uh, on Bonfire Night for penny from mm. the guy, but that, that requires effort on the child's own mm-hmm. part, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Stuffing tights with newspapers and stuff.
2: Creativity rather than commerce.
3: Yes. Fuck Halloween. I'm really angry now.
0: Hello, it's Halloween night on Top of the bump so we've got a party here. Why not join us? Here's three ladies from New York called Raw Silk, and do it to the music.
3: After the obligatory Yellow Pearl slash Smatchy Records intro, we are greeted by a crash out of the show logo to the site of the kids in some piss poor Halloween rig out, while a zoo wanker dressed as a minion with pointy sideburns and claws opens up a mummy's tomb to reveal. Simon. <laughs> who is still holding down the 9 to 11 slot. Today, he's given the next seven days horoscopes for Scorpio and Sagittarius before handing over to Dave Lee Travis direct from the motor show in Birmingham. Oh, but that was fascinating. Oh, yeah. Now then, every time we cover an episode that's hosted by Bates, I always ask one simple question, why? <laughs> and in this case... I say it again. I say it louder. Why?
4: Well, it does seem a a weird choice, right? If you're going to yeah. if you're going to do a Halloween spectacular, or spooktacular, if you will, <laughs> why choose Simon Bates? Until you consider the alternatives, right? Because, like, okay, yeah. obviously Savile would have been. Uh, too, too authentically <laughs> terrifying like his, his halloween was all about sliding razor blades into apples and sprinkling rat poison into sherbet dib dabs and you know. and and people like peter powell and kid jensen no. who can only imagine as the victims of rampaging yes. ghouls yes. and yes. monsters uh yeah. and Richard Skinner would only work in that he is the human personification of a thick fog. Um, But otherwise. But but it's a
3: great Halloween name, isn't it? Richard Skinner
4: (laughs) of children. Yeah, DLT, as you say, would make a convincing uh, werewolf. But as soon as you connect DLT to the idea of horror, you're more in the area of like hammers discovered in the car boot. And yeah. uh, <laughs> blocked up drains and stuff, which it's not really the kind of scares that the BBC wants no. for its flagship pop program. So you're left with Bates, and yeah. so why didn't they call him Simon Batts?
1: <laughs> oh, that, of course, yeah,
4: he's not an obvious choice because his facility with wacky comedy links is sort of yeah. on a par with <laughs> you know Sir Keith Joseph, <laughs> but yes, but he does have a sort of. 1930s universal pictures horror air about him you know lumbering <laughs> around looming over people you know uh, and he's also he's quite reassuring in that he's the one person on earth you can least imagine dabbling
2: in the occult <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think reassuring is a really key word here. Bates Mm. had, I mean, Bates is shit, just like the idea of doing a Halloween special. So he's kind of perfect. He has that ability to just coast things along and kind of, he's able to chuckle do you know what I mean? And chuckle and, yes. and uh, chuckle things along midline, although transparently nothing remotely is, uh, amusing is going on at all. So, no. Um, the only other one I think could possibly could have done it would have been Everett, but I think Everett would have turned yeah. it into a, a three-hour, um, yes, you know, yes. sort of thing. Um, and that mummy that Bates comes out of. Um, by yeah. the way, uh, where I wonder where that's from because it can't have obviously been made just for top of the pops. Wow. Could be Doctor Who, BBC could be Rentiger Ghosts. department. Yeah, it thinking of look... the
4: timing, it could have been. Could it have been the Iron Maiden from the King's Demons Ooh. Doctor <laughs> Who story with the spikes uh, yeah. removed? I don't know. I'll yeah, have to could check. have been.
2: Could be Rentiger Ghosts. I mean, it doesn't actually look like a sarcophagus. That's the thing. What it yeah. reminded no. me of was the um, Golem from the 1922 German Expressionist classic of the same name. (laughs) Um, And by the way, do they add a sort of creaking noise on it when it opens? Yes, they do, do. yes. I thought so. Yeah.
4: (laughs) But also, I think you've got to give credit to the bloke who opens the uh, the sarcophagus. You can hardly see, but he's playing his part to the hilt, right? He he grimaces evilly as he pulls the door open, although that might be the natural response to the reveal of Simon Bates <laughs> with a ham mic um, and also when Simon Bates then introduces the first act he claps his monster hands in a sort of slow yes. and monsterish way yeah, like yeah. as if he's having trouble you know it, you've got to admire it Got to admire it. Yeah,
3: <laughs> what you said about Savile earlier, I've got to chuck in the the year that Savile died and all the shit came out. The pubs in Nottingham put out a joint statement to the local media saying anyone who turned up at any pubs on Halloween night dressed like Jimmy Savile was automatically barred out. <laughs> the problem is fucking every other middle-aged bloke in Nottingham dresses like Jimmy <laughs> Savile, just fucking tracksuits and lank hair. after emerging from the tomb dressed in his usual maths teacher on a school trip outfit he wrongly informs us that it's halloween night and top of the pops is having a party for a change he then introduces us to three ladies from new york raw silk with their song do it to the music Formed in New York in 1979, Raw Silk were a female dance trio comprising of Valerie Pettiford and Tanita Jordan, who appeared in The Wiz, and Broadway singer and Earth, Wind & Fire backing singer Jessica Cleves, who was in the 60s vocal group Friends of Distinction and has just finished session work for George Clinton's Computer Games LP. They were put together by Ron Dean Miller and Burt Reed, who were in the Crown Heights Affair, and they're signed to West End Records, who are currently pumping out a torrent of what would soon be known as New York Garage releases. This is their first single release in the UK. It was a new entry last week at number 38, and it's gone up five places to number 33. And immediately you feel very, very sorry for them, don't you? Mm -hmm. These cool young ladies from the five boroughs, Pitched into this fucking hell.
2: Yeah, this rather piss poor Halloween. Um, Yeah. This rather piss poor Halloween, where kids are draped in sheets and 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 crucially, I mean, I know we're going to come on to talk about uh, Zoo repeatedly, probably during Mm. this episode. But seriously, fuck Zoo. I mean, they're (laughs) oh man, there's a particular trio of absolute wank snaps that I'm on a really short fuse with with Zoo. Um, Yeah. And I I was trying to identify what it is about Zoo that pissed me off. And and, and it's it's Mm. here in this performance by Raw Soon. I mean, I can see it's not just dance moves because, you know, I can see similar dance moves on, say, um, the Hot Shoe Show or something and and not be annoyed. But I, I, I think the problem here is Zoo's dominance of the TOTP space. Yes. Um, way more intrusive than Lexi Cole Pans people ever were, and at the beginning yeah. of this performance by Raw Silk, there's a yeah. couple who, who fuck me off. To be honest with you, throughout the <laughs> I whole know episode, exactly who they are. yeah, the moon faced guy with fucking stockings on and, and the shit pirate yeah. girl at the front. So yes. rude! What are they doing at the front? They're not stars, and yeah, yet, and yeah, we're meant to watch the hilarious kind of shit. And then later on, he pretends to strangle her, and it's just oh god, a zoo, <laughs> fucking hell. It's it, it's not just the audience letting down raw silk here. It's it's Zoo as well. Mm. Because because throughout this episode, you don't, as Laura's letter revered earlier um, to mm. Smash it. you don't get to see the punters. You get to see Zoo, who seem to be multiplying. There just seem to be fucking hundreds yes. of them. Um, yeah. So, yeah, getting to the song and being able to talk about it is difficult because there's so much Zoo wankery to get through first.
3: Yeah. I mean, we instantly get a rear view of the kids right at the beginning. Because the camera swoops over them to get to the stage, and uh, we, we we get to see the costumes that I, I believe have been given to them. And uh, yeah, not very good, are they?
4: Well, zoo are, are all in full costume, of course. Of course, as yeah. Frankenstein's and skeletons and stuff. There's that skeleton mm. that keeps doing backflips.
3: Oh, yes. I think shows right.
4: enviable quad strength. Uh, all things considered, <laughs> yeah, uh, but the. Uh, Oh, the kids. Oh it
3: would have been great if he'd done a backflip and just collapsed into a pile of bones. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but the
4: kids uh yeah they just you know they got a they like a shit, don't joke they? shop frankenstein mask or a mm or they've got a yeah. sheet over their head. But they because they want to yeah, yeah, see... Yeah, a
3: sheet. They've got, they've got a, like a net curtain over their head. I think they're supposed to be ghosts, yeah. which is the absolute lowest level of the... Yeah. You know, yeah, if yeah. you go into a Halloween party and you just can't be fucked with it, you just go, <laughs> oh, give me that fucking sheet. That'll do. And then you wear it for about five minutes. You go, right, enough of this bollocks. Mm-hmm. Let's get pissed up and <laughs> leer at some girl's... <laughs>
4: But what's even worse is that because they're on, they're in the top of the pop studio and they want to see, they've pulled mm. the sheet back over their face. <laughs> yeah. So they, they don't like have, They haven't like even ghosts.
3: got eye holes in the sheets. No. That's just rule number one if you've been a ghost in a
4: sheet, isn't it? So they, they don't look like ghosts. They look like sort of Saudi Arabian princes. or <laughs> yes. Or if they some of them have got hats on and they put them behind the hats, so they look like beekeepers. Um, mm. Yeah. And you sort of you have to respect raw silk for their yeah. professionalism because they yes. just keep doing their usual sort of would-be slinky act it to yeah. the music yeah
2: yeah talk about true moments of horror there is one here um which is yeah i mean i've s- you know, not the annoying zoo wankers. But, you know, somebody's got a cat on a stick or something. It, it's like <laughs> it's like a, a really strangely detailed picture of a black cat. And it's on a stick. Yeah. It's like a banner. And, and suddenly yeah. it flares up, right, totally blurred and out of focus in front of the screen. That made me <laughs> yeah. jump out of my skin, man. <laughs> yeah. but, 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 the, but the guy, the skull and bones who's doing backflips, he yeah. was the other irritating zoo person for me. Because yeah. when he does the backflip... He does this zany head waggle um, yes. that just created instant homicidal urges in me. I wanted to travel back in time and just put yeah. his knackers in a George Foreman grill. I hated him. Um,
4: <laughs> There's also uh, that bloke in the audience who's just wearing a uh, pure late two-tone sort of Mickey Pierce get-up. Um, <laughs> yes. like fancy dress is beneath him. And, yeah. a, and a pork pie hat is above him. And mm-hmm. that's just the way it's going to be.
3: Mm. Yeah, I mean the the, the zoo wankers. I noticed there was one black lad in a long grass skirt and a hat, which was obviously a piss poor attempt to look like Baron Samedi. Mm. And but the other one was the the bloke in the two tone jester costume. Did you see him? Oh God, yeah. The outfit makes him look like he's into Merillion and the Specials, and he, he
2: just can't decide which one to go for. <laughs> and hardcore bondage as well, because there's kind of change yeah. going over him. Yeah, he's like a really yeah. really shit. Um, Jed yeah. with Howard Jones. Yeah. He's
3: essentially Jed Jabsco into. <laughs> but the Poncy Dracula man, he is the smuggest person ever. Oh, yeah,
2: He reappears repeatedly. Yes, he um, does. Just one of them punchable faces. I
3: mean, Louisa Slough, you know, she was totally right to say that, that it was bad enough that, that, that they were acing out the audience. But here we see that they, they actually look as if they're trying to be part of the band. Mm, yeah. Completely. And it's a testament to raw silk to not just lamp someone or piss themselves laughing. What must they have thought? They're Americans. Yeah.
2: And they're they're seeing... They're seeing charming backward people. um, Yes. Doing whatever they have to do. I mean, God bless them because they totally rise above. They they don't make reference or or even acknowledge anything that's going on, really. They do a performance that could almost have been delivered anywhere.
4: The thing about Raw Silk, though, who incidentally should actually have been called Noil, um, is that <laughs> <laughs> it's, they look so straight. Like they're in the middle of this, mm. this uh, shit show of uh, yeah. crazy costumes and they look dead straight. It's that period where like, black dance records were being performed by people who look like they work in a publisher's office or something. You know what I mean? Mm. So they got that look sort of like Lydia from Fame. You know, like a really yes. sensible, mm, mature look, but with maybe like a yeah. leather skirt or long fingernails, like yeah. a faint suggestion of wildness. You know, but the fundamental yeah. straightness of the image sort of reflects the sound. Really, well, I say straightness. I mean, this is this is really a gay dance record, isn't it? This is a yes. This is, is like yeah. a, It's not what you'd associate with a with an 80s New York gay dance record but it's this is this was the big no. thing in the very early 80s where it's uh, very low key and classy and it's just about dancing rather than putting on any mm. kind of show but that's kind of what's wrong with this record it could do with a bit more yeah. flamboyance it just it, and it considering the people involved with this behind the scenes and stuff like crown Knight's affair and that you would expect a little mm. bit more umph and a bit more energy, yeah. but it just finds this groove and then just grows old in it really quickly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, it's still, I mean, their personas are not really strong enough, in a sense. I mean, I have mm. to try when preparing for this podcast to not just think about how much I might love a record now, but try and figure out why I might have disliked it then. Um, yeah. This song, I don't think it's a great song. I know it now because mm. I've heard it enough, but really because of the mm. bass line... Those details you notice as a kid, but I think what lodges a song in your head first so that you start noticing and remembering things like the bass line and the drums is a sung hook that you can remember, a chorus. So this wouldn't have really lingered with me. I I, I encounter the same problem with the Melbourne Moore record um, that, that, that came on later um yeah. so not a great not a great tune but i mean uh, hats off to them for just rising above the shit show that's going on in front of them um because yeah. their performance is is as spot on as it can get really the song itself is okay yeah but it's not condensed enough to really be strong enough in the hooks i, I was sort of checking out remixes of it because i suspected that once persona was removed from this record and it did just become an almost totally electronic dance record it would be better so the dub version of this is fucking mm. amazing i mean it needs to be eight minutes longer and you need to be on fast drugs to enjoy it but the dub version where their yeah. vocals are completely depersonal personalized in a way and just treated as texture really works but this this song yeah. I, i'll give it a pass
3: yeah i mean as far as the song goes it is your bog standard opening song to top of the pops mm. yeah you know, it just eases you in but uh, i think the thing that struck me was a nice bit of um cross-pollination going on because the do it do it do it bits are a nick of do it to me baby by the miracles mm. Mm. And then the actual part of the chorus was clearly
2: nicked by D-Light for Groovies in the Heart. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think of that. Didn't think of that. But it is a record about dancing, and that's probably why it wouldn't have appealed to me at that time. And precisely why records about deliberately not dancing did appeal to me at this time, as we'll see later on. And
3: of course, at the end, we see that one of the kids in the front, uh, ripping the neck curtain off, throwing it down and then turning round to the camera to give a meaty thumbs up. <laughs> as he's, he's already had enough of this shit. So, the following week, Do It To The Music jumped seven places to number 27, where it stayed for two weeks before leaping up to number 18, its highest position. The follow-up, just in time, only got to number 49 in September of 1983, and they were never heard of again.
0: You, is Hang on, just put a snake in. See you. Mm. Hey, it's quite nice. We'll have that after the show, but first of all, a bit of music. Here's the Beatles. Oh, hello, darling. Someone I know, and it's the Beatles. <laughs>
3: Face, surrounded by pumpkins, a saucy pre-goth sort and two of the shrouded kids, is leaning on a massive bubbling cauldron and throwing rubber snakes into it, claiming that one is someone he knows. (sighs) He says, there's nothing like a
4: Halloween stew, (laughs) is there? (laughs) No, there is nothing like a Halloween stew. I've never heard of such a thing. No, it's amazing. Watching Bates do comedy Mm. is incredible. It's Mm. like I think it's an ad lib when the the PVC bat flutters into his face and he kisses Mm. it. And I think it's an ad lib partly because it wrecks the flow of the link. Mm. Yes, Um, and he can't recover, Um, (laughs) and also because it's almost the same joke he uses later when he says, oh, it's mm. someone I know. He yeah. it, it does almost the same joke later on, and that one's obviously yeah. scripted. So it's like yeah. he can't invent anything. He, he can't <laughs> think on his feet. His mind just snatches at the nearest idea in his brain that's labelled comedy, yeah. and he says yeah. that. It's like he's panicking, but because he's Simon Bates, it's like a really stolid panic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, barely yeah. moving. He's got no expression, but it's like he's... In his brain, he's hopelessly thrashing around in his half-empty brain for something to say, <laughs> yeah. something funny, like madly, madly digging for jewels. And you just hear the spade hitting concrete every time.
2: That, that's it I mean as soon as he said there's nothing like Halloween shit he's right because there really isn't anything like Halloween yeah. shit no yeah. nobody's ever heard of a fucking Halloween shit in fact those words have never been put together and when he says mmm that snake's no. taste quite nice and you know has to put up the taste of rubber in his mouth probably not for the first time what a trooper but I don't know he kisses it he says it's someone I know even in a tiny shit gag he manages to squeeze in some sort of bitterness and rancor at his appreciation and um, <laughs> yeah. you kind of get that throughout this Episodes with these quote unquote comedy bits. Do you think he volunteered to present this one or do you think he was pushed into it? Hmm, interesting. Because whoever's going to present this is going to look like a total bell end, aren't they? (laughs) I can't imagine him volunteering for it. I can imagine other DJs perhaps who would volunteer for it, but not him. Not Mm. him. No. 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 He then kisses one of the rubber bats that are dangling above the
3: cauldron before introducing us to Love Me Do by The Beatles. Formed in Liverpool in 1957 as the quarrymen, The Beatles. Oh, the fucking Beatles! Mm. This, of course, is their debut single, which originally got to number 17 in January of 1963, and it was re-released by EMI earlier this month on the recently reactivated Parlophone label as part of their It Was 20 Years Ago series, where each Beatles single was to be put out on its 20th anniversary. It's the follow-up, of sorts to the Beatles movie medley which got to number 10 in July of this year and we're treated to a video of the Mop Fabs having a bit of a sing and a piss about while loads of people go absolutely fucking mental at them and it's up this week from number 5 to number 4 20 years
4: 20 years right and it's like looking at film of the war like even in yes. 1982 the,
3: the, the first world war at that <laughs> Yeah,
4: and it's presented that way You know, as ancient history. Like Simon Bates, who incredibly still isn't 40 at this point. um, He would have been 16 when this record was first in the charts, right? Mm. He was older than most of the kids you see in this video. And here he is now, still in his 30s, like a young man, despite appearances, Mm. a young man wearing white shoes and presenting pop music. And Mm. the sheer... Speed at which culture and society had moved in that twenty year period uh, where everything else stayed the same, like technology and like the structure of everyday life had hardly hardly changed at all um, mm. and it 's weird because now the exact opposite applies: culture has slowed down almost to a crawl, and technology yeah. is moving faster than anyone can follow, as are yeah. you know the basics of how we live and how we operate within political yeah. structures, you know, um, and the planet's progress towards catastrophe. So we look at pop music of 20 years ago, and it's like, what, The the Boy Is Mine by Brandy and Monica, mm-hmm. and, you mm. know, uh, Three Lions 98 by <laughs> uh, Badil and Skidder with The Lightning Seeds. And it seems like a different era in terms of music technology and that that sort of weird sense of living in untroubled times that you get with a lot of nineties music. But it never seems like mysterious cave paintings, the way Love Me Do seemed in nineteen eighty-two. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like to us that could have been the day before yesterday. And it's partly because we now understand the music of nineteen ninety-eight better than people did in nineteen ninety-eight. Because we still live in that world, but we we have more perspective on it because time has passed. Whereas people from 1962 got this record in a way that people of 1982 never quite could. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because you hear Love Me Do after the fact, and it's possible to appreciate that when it came out, it sounded like a, a cold, clear breeze blowing in from the north, you know scattering mm. the the fog, the orchestrated fog of uh, British pop music of the period. But, well, I mean, that's an oversimplification because, you know, you, you had things like Shaking All Over and various Joe Meat records or whatever. Yeah. But you have to stretch a bit because, I mean, this is the Beatles at their tamest. You know, they're mm. still nervous in the studio. They're, they've toned down the sort of Hamburg aggression, but they're not really confident or skilled enough yet to write and perform at the level of of She Loves You or I Wanna Hold Your Hand, which is when they start to sound genuinely cataclysmic because that's when you hear the real abandon and iconoclasm and and sexual energy, like propelled into the dead centre of British popular culture, you know. At this point, it's just it's like the sort of the Everly brothers and Buddy Holly, but sort of relocated to the Liverpool docks and and, and smashed around the head until they've forgotten half of what they know, you know. But so yeah, in 1982, this is like, yeah, it's like looking at something beamed in from another age. Um, and and also this is, this is the version that doesn't even have Ringo on it, right? Ringo right. had just joined before they made this record, and at their EMI test recording, they still had Pete Best on drums. And he was so shit, like despite that urban legend that Pete Best was a much better drummer and they sacked him because he was good looking or something. Complete shit. When you hear the recordings with Pete Best, he's awful. Yeah. And George yeah. Martin said, we can't record anything with that drummer, I'm going to get a session drummer in. So they booted him out, they came back with Ringo, but George Martin had already booked the session drummer. So they recorded it once with the session drummer, with Ringo on tambourine, and once with Ringo on the drums. Version with Ringo on drums went out as a single. The version with the session drummer with Ringo on Tambourine went on the album. but mm. they used the the album version for this reissue. I think because the master tape of the Ringo version was destroyed in nineteen sixty three so every right. reissue of that since has been a needle drop, like you know when you get those obscure northern yeah. soul records and Garage Punk Records and they they have to do it off an old vinyl. That's yeah. what the first Beatles single is now whenever you the hear fuck. it. So instead we get uh we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Beatles by listening to, to the other guy on the drums.
2: But I think I seem to recall this only being a part of that celebration in a sense. And that I recall um I know it's an old cliche best Beatles album best of the Beatles. But um I, you know that 20 <laughs> greatest hits album Um, The Beatles, you remember the sleeve of it that I think was majorly majorly responsible for getting the Beatles back into, I'm not saying the Beatles had ever disappeared from the public consciousness but I think previous to that the Beatles were a load of solo artists that I knew about and I only really knew about them more really because of John Lennon's shooting um, than I did anything else, that 20 Greatest Hits album that came pretty soon after this singles reissue um, that was the thing that introduced me to the Beatles and, and and introduced me in a big way to the kind of, yeah, the fundamentals of pop. And then beyond that, of course, it was getting into the blue album and then the red album. And then of course, then of course the albums followed. Um, I said earlier that I wasn't really listening to old stuff. I would say that that started happening the following year with the issue of that 20 Greatest Hits album, Um, with the issue of an album that everyone's forgotten, but that had such a massive formative influence on me called Formula 30, which was a double Mm. kind of rock compilation. It was just, you know, shit tap probably just put out to put a load of hits together. But I remember I had four Rolling Stones tunes on it and a few Roxy music tunes on it. And that, That blew my mind. And also the biggest thing that propelled me towards old music in the 80s, and I think it was the same for a lot of people, was the rock and roll years, which which absolutely changed everything about my attitude towards old music. Um, But at Mm. this time in 82... Honestly, the Beatles weren't really a big... Not the golden oldie picture show now. Well, the golden oldie picture show, my memory's foggy about when that started happening. And I've got to admit, I didn't watch it that often. I loved the rock and roll years. Mm. And still yeah. now, say if I hear um, Life on Mars by David Bowie, I still see yeah. footage of Concord crashing um, you know, as I'm watching it because the the tying together of imagery and sound in that show is really, really important, I think. Um, mm. But at this time... The Beatles weren't really a thing in my life. Obviously, Lennon getting shot was a brilliant career move for the Beatles to a certain extent in, yes. in introducing, you know, him and um, the Beatles to, to so many of us. But up until this point, maybe eighty-two when that compilation came out, the Beatles to me were yeah, yeah John Lennon, oh he got shot, and Paul McCartney, um,
3: out of wings. and Wings.
2: Yeah, it, yeah. it, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't that I sat around listening to the Beatles much until that Twenty Greatest Hits album came out and yeah. because that 20 greatest hits album was ruthlessly compiled from a commercial sense really it was about sales figures mm. and it was the 20 biggest selling singles that they did um it introduced yeah. me to everything that i love about the beatles but also everything that i'd grow to not like about the beatles as well um so that was yeah. a really important record for me Love me too i didn't know any of that about the drummer um uh, about who, who who drummed on it because the drums were what absolutely suckered me for this song. I loved the drums on this song um, at a young age. It's just got a real propulsion to it. Um, but at the time, I was not yet diving into the past. I still had a belief in the present. And kind of, this did seem, of course, with all the black and white footage, it just seemed from another total of the time. I mean, it was, but a genuinely kind of prehistoric time almost.
4: Andrew White. Yeah, Andy.
3: That was the drummer, Andy White. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask was, what did the Beatles mean to you before Lennon was shot and you were growing up? Because to me, they meant extremely little. I mean, we were an Elvis household. Mm-hmm. My mum liked the Beatles, but she never bought records. She never played records. Um, and, you know, in 1979, if you'd have asked me who was the bigger band, I would have said the Monkeys, because they were on telly all the time. <laughs> you never saw the Beatles films. Yeah you knew Paul McCartney through wings. Lennon was a recluse. Yeah. George Harrison and Ringo didn't mean anything at all. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm trying to look back now and think they must have meant something. I mean, I can recall being 4 years old and singing Beatles songs yeah. uh, on a on a bingo blower. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my mum used to work in a bingo hall when I was 4 and 5 and uh, the nursery school was too far away for me to go to. So um I used to go with my mum. And, um, you know, while she was cleaning up, I'd get on the microphone and sing, I want to hold your hand. Mm-hmm. I remember one time, I think it was Paperback Writer was on the radio, and my grandpa was saying, oh, turn that ram- ramble off, it's a load of balsam. And I, I just turned around to him and said, grandpa, that's the Beatles, they're the greatest band ever. And he just looked at me as if to say, where the fuck did he get that from? <laughs> but I I knew very few Beatles songs and it wasn't until John Lennon was shot that the importance of the Beatles was revealed to me.
2: Yeah, but the crucial thing is how you did know some Beatles songs. They yeah, did, did feel yeah. they did feel that like they were part of the national songbook in yes, a sense. Yes, they were. So so you would have sung those songs sometimes at school. I remember singing those songs yeah. at school being led by a a teacher singing yeah. those songs. Yeah. You know, I also remember perhaps not owning, you know, the white album or anything in the 70s, but certainly owning records like um Jeff Love and his Tijuana Brass playing the hits of Lennon and McCartney. Yeah. They were they were just kind of accepted as part of the national book of melodies, if you like. But they so, weren't. But they weren't rammed up your ass as much no, in the seventies no, as they were in no, the eighties. No, they weren't. But 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 I think Lennon's death gave that movement to make them important yeah. again. Some impetus. Well, I remember yeah. when
4: I got into the Beatles, and I was astonished to find out that Yellow Submarine was their song. Do you know what I mean? It, yes. was like, it was like yes. as if you just got a, got a Kinks album. And, oh, look, they did uh, uh, the Ink is Black, the Page is White. Together we learned to read yes. them out. <laughs> yeah. i yeah. have never heard of John Lennon when he got shot. I didn't know who he was. I'd heard of the Beatles. Mm. The only ones I knew was mm. Paul McCartney and, and Ringo, because he had a funny name. Mm. Uh meant yes. nothing. meant nothing to me. I went into school, and everyone was talking about how their mum had been crying all morning, you know. Uh I didn't even know who he was.
3: We've had 18 months of bad Lennon, if you want, the, the, the 70s Lennon. Mm. And all of a sudden, here he is, you know, a lot younger and a lot more agreeable to people our age, I think.
4: Yeah, apart from... Because he's a yeah, cheeky yeah, fucker. Yeah. Apart from the fact here, that isn't yeah. every time there's a camera on him, uh, he does his hilarious comedy playground, Belm, uh, which hasn't yes. aged very well. Um no. no really also hasn't. what I was a bit disappointed in, in with this video is that in the first part of the video where they're getting off the plane and waving to all the crowds mm. at the airport it's not the bit of newsreel yeah. footage they normally show for that where you see a bunch of kids waving banners like made out of painted yeah. bed sheets and most of them say like you know mm. welcome home boys and we love you ringo and mm. stuff and then the one on the end says England get out of Ireland <laughs> one of my favourite Beatles clips although the best bit in the video is uh, where uh, John Lennon does that thing where he's just picking up a glass of wine to have a swig and he notices the camera's on him puts it down picks up a cup of tea drinks that and does a a cheesy comedy smile say hey kids we're we're Mm. lovable really we never drink alcohol and it's a genuinely great bit of physical comedy Mm. yes
2: obviously the black and whiteness of the footage Immediately tells you this is an unrecoverable age, and, and 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 John Lennon's death obviously meant that the Beatles could never ever get back together again. Yeah. So all these little aspects of it, the, the fact that when they're walking from backstage to stage um, to be on the TV show, they've all got a, a sort of almost a pint in their hand and a fag on the go. <laughs> <Yeah. And all laughs> Endless of, all of, fags on the go. Yeah. All of it. All of it seems like massively unrecoverable. Black and white in '82 was as distant as anything you know it just seemed like a totally different age yeah. um but I, I you know i do think it, it the purpose of this being reissued they can say it was for the 20th anniversary i'm suspecting that's also the reason that yeah the 20 greatest hits album came out because I, yeah. I i honestly I'm not, I'm not being partridge to say that's the, the my favorite beatles album but in a sense of unlocking the beatles for me it was the mm. most important Beatles record that I ever got to hear. You,
3: you do feel that the uh, the movie medley was a bit of a trial balloon and uh, it floated and so they went, yeah. right, let's go full steam
2: ahead. But really what we're seeing here is a first go at the repackaging of the past that the rest of the yes. 80s would, would would do. So yeah. this is almost like a trial run for the rock and roll years. It's actually, for all its faults, and there's, there's odd bits, like the repeated... I mean, I don't know whether this is a fault or not, but you know the way it repeatedly goes to the photographer's um, every time it goes to the freeze frame it goes to this photographer kind of loading his camera up um yeah. that th- it's all total rehearsal for the rock and roll years um mm. and and it works it works yeah. it, it it it's incomparable with anything else in the show though because it's a complete time yeah. travel time tunnel back to something
4: yeah, yeah. and what's weird is yeah. yeah the 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 real 60s nostalgia that we got in the eighties hasn't kicked in mm, mm. I mean we've already had Back to the sixties by tight fit and stuff like that, but the real sixties thing kicked in a bit later once, uh, once the eighties was underway because it was a reaction to the feel of the eighties and the mood of the eighties. Yeah, and if you didn't like that, the sixties was like the nearest opposite, and it was still so close you yeah. could almost touch it. You know, and so you mm-hmm. get like posh kids with flowers in their hair and all that sort of thing. You know, although it, it's weird because it didn't occur to many people that a lot of the specific things about the 80s that people were trying to escape from, like the economic philosophies and the the spiviness and the the total belief in self-gratification, these were all mutant offspring of what happened in the 60s and the real legacy of what happened in the 60s. I mean, for all the hostility to uh, progressive social changes that you got from, like, Thatcher and Reagan and their base... um, Really, it was the individualism of the '60s is what had enabled this new form of right-wing politics. You know, that's where the old high Toryism ends, uh, and Thatcherism starts to take shape. You know, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you can't blame the Beatles. You can be really cynical and you can say, you know, what were the ultimate long-term effects of the Beatles? Well, we got, you know, reefers on the quad. And prime ministers in jeans and <laughs> the union of advertising and the word revolution, uh, which is all true. But if you don't want to be cynical about it, you can say, no, this is still the greatest expression of all the positive changes in post-war Britain and the sudden opening of important doors, you know. Um, and the Beatles didn't invent that, but they were in the vanguard. And the further they retreat into history and textbooks and the canon of great things which are no longer seen to be directly relevant, the faster all those doors are closing. And although there's not that much left to learn directly from Beatles records, either musically or in terms of the sort of... the often naive and outdated ideas that are expressed on some of them, the spirit and the openness and the hunger for knowledge... An experience which you can hear on those records is the purest form of the freedom that's being siphoned out of british culture today and i think it's mm. that as much as the musical quality that makes them still important and
2: inspiring mm. Mm. but at this point in 82 that importance isn't isn't what's being aimed for because people aren't that horrified by 82. They're horrified politically maybe in lots of ways, but musically we haven't yet got to a stage where we're horrified by the textures of pop and we're horrified by just the sheer big commercial fact of pop um in 82 i'm not saying there's hope in the present but there's still a kind of belief in the present so this is presented as here's a little time capsule yep. don't bother learning anything from it necessarily but here's a little time capsule of the funny little way we used to do pop back in the day yep. um that actual investigation of the beatles as a way of making new music i don't think has started yet
3: and about top of the pulse i'm very pleased to whack this in for uh, for mum and dad mm, mm. do you think do you think paul mccartney would have been a bit pissed off about this Seeing the fact that he's still got a solo career and this might be getting
2: in the way of it. I don't think he'd have been pissed off. I mean, it all works sort of in his favour to a certain extent. If people get back into the Beatles.
3: This song did better than um, virtually all of his solo output. I mean, he did get to number one this year, but uh, uh, as a duo.
2: By that, well, look, I mean, with with Paul McCartney, I just think, yep, he was totally stoned for like about 30 years yeah, and could enough. really give a monkey's. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> The other thing about this record, which nobody knew at the time, is the story that passed into legend is all wrong. And we were told that, you know, George Martin heard something in these lads that nobody else had heard and uh, signed them up. And uh, No, what actually happened was, um, this has only come out recently because Mark Lewisone did uh, uh, that enormous book It's like the thickest Beatles biography ever, and it only goes up to 1962. Um, And it's got all this amazing detail in it about the early years that nobody ever knew because he went and did like eight years of research and found out the terrible truth, which is that they were signed to EMI because EMI's publishing company heard the songs uh, of Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You that they'd done at the test recording and thought, this band is shit, but these songs might be hits. Maybe we can you know, get the publishing on these songs and give them to a proper singer, you know, uh, and give them to, yeah, so they signed them up, uh, because they wanted to publish the songs. And Mm. George Martin was given the production job of the Beatles as a punishment because he had had an affair with his secretary. He had just left his wife or was in the process of leaving his wife, uh, because he'd had an affair with his secretary who he, who he later got together with. Um, And this was not the done thing at the time. And his boss at EMI was very disapproving of this. Um, He couldn't be Mm -hmm. sacked for it. But what they did was lumber him with this bum group, the Beatles, that Mm -hmm. nobody wanted to do. Um, And he wasn't best pleased. Um, And, you know, he got over it. But it's just... You know, I think the Beatles story works better that way.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. So the following week, Love Me Do dropped three places to number seven. The follow-up, Please Please Me, got to number 29 in January of 1983, and the third re-release, From Me To You, made it to number 40 in April of that year. Although EMI stuck it all the way to 1990 with Let It Be, none of the remaining re-releases cracked the top 40. And when Love Me Do was re-released again in October of 1992, any plans for a 30th anniversary campaign were shelved when it only made number 53. And of course, Love Me Do and the B-side PS I Love You are the only Beatles songs that Paul McCartney owns as they were taken by one of EMI's publishing wings that Michael Jackson knew fuck all about. love me do
0: From the vault, from a long way back by the Beatles. I have a few friends calling, I must go to the door. How'd you like to tonic, with blood? Without, it's (laughs) Luzul.
3: With his head wedged into a rack of bubbling test tubes and surrounded by a zoo wanker dressed as a witch, the backflipping skeleton and one of the kids in a waistcoat puts on a mad professor accent as he introduces Cry Boy Cry by Blue Zoo. Formed in London in 1980 under the name Modern Jazz, <laughs> Blue Zoo were a vaguely synthy band who were picked up by the management duo Jazz Summers and Simon Napier Bell and released two singles that failed to make the charts in 1981. This is the follow up to I'm Your Man, which got to number 55 in June of this year and it's nipped up this week from number 39 to number 35. Now, before we say anything else, if you've seen this episode on the BBC4 repeat a year or so ago, you won't have seen this song, because they cut it to bring the length down to just under 30 minutes. Why the fuck do they do that in 2018?
2: Well, because the treatment of the archive remains really shoddy when they're repeating these things. Yeah, it does. Um, Essentially, what that makes the repeat of this is a clip show which spoils the flow completely. It reminds me massively of, you know, instead of just showing Morecambe and Wise shows now, they have to do a best of Morecambe and Wise where they've got fucking David Baddiel looking embarrassed sort of having to watch it, oh, yeah. laughing whilst watching it, and it just destroys the flow of the, the build, the rhythm of these comedy routines that are so genius, so that yeah. most people now, thinking of, say, the Andre Previn sketch, for uh, Morgan Wise, would think of just a bit when the curtain opens and the band's there, and everything that happens after that, but what about the fucking preamble before it? Getting rid of this yeah. shit just shows how ostensibly they they care for the form, they care for the archive, yeah. they don't. They're, they're careless about it. Um, and, and it yeah. really angered me. It, it really what it are. reminded me of is a, a thing that massively annoys me, and I, and I think, I hope, something that Chart Music Podcast absolutely doesn't do, is, you know, Top of the Pops 2, the kind of mm. captions that come up, that kind of Ugh. sardonic, mildly misogynistic sometimes, and, and the voiceover as well, is always just the wrong side of taking the piss. Where It, it, it just displays no yeah. love for pop, that kind of thing. Yeah. It shows a real yeah. snottiness about it. Um, BBC4 cutting this out, I know it seems daft, getting upset about them cutting out Cry Boy Cry, but... Um, You know, it shows a carelessness for for important archive that actually destroys the cumulative impact of the show that really angers me. Yeah,
3: and and it's like, what, you you can't wait another five minutes before putting on another fucking documentary about New Order or or something. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm.
3: It's ridiculous. Why don't you just lop five minutes off the news? I watched the Top of the Pops thing last night, the repeat on BBC4, And the last five minutes of the programme before it, which was the news, was some bullshit about some fucking royal woman getting up the stick. It's like, who gives a fuck? (laughs) I want Blue Zoo instead of that. Yeah, too right. I mean, the thing is, every time they cut something out of Top of the Pops on the BBC Four repeats, I always think, well, what happened there? What what was so horrible and evil that they've had to (laughs) expunge it from the memory? And I just thought, fucking hell, was, was Simon Bates... Pretended to be the Yorkshire Ripper or something.
4: <laughs> no, he was, he was pretending to be a, a mad scientist and saying, mm. how do you light your tonic with blood without? Yeah. Which is, yeah. not only is it not a joke, it's nothing. It doesn't seem to refer to anything. It's another one of his bafflingly uh, nonsensical uh, anti-jokes. And I was just sat there thinking, do you think he wore that get-up and talked in that voice when he was wanking hogs for money? Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, talking about... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you but, say mad scientist accent. It's just the first in a series of just shit accents um, yes. by Bates. You remember yeah. when Blackhead has taken the piss out of Prince Ludwig... And he goes on about that funny croaky one that's no one in particular. That's what Bates does throughout. (laughs) Luckily, we've
3: found a shonky version of this performance on YouTube.
2: Um, You know, before we go
3: into the song, I mean, BBC, just leave the shit alone. Mm. You know, and if
2: you are going to cut stuff out of the top of the pop's repeats, leave the iPlayer version as it is, please. Mm. You wonder, would they do this with any other kind of music, apart from pop music? I don't think so. Anyway... Blue Zoo. Seen at the time as the next
3: Duran Duran I seem to recall. <laughs> no, they weren't. F- Oke um was t- in an interview in Smash Hits he said they were going to be the next big band. Why weren't
2: they? <laughs> <laughs> were this a parody of an 80s band? You would dismiss it as being a bit too on the nose. Yeah. Um, that's what's weird. Uh, 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 I was all minded not to like this. The high bass line bit in the song, if the whole song was that, mm. I wouldn't have minded it. But it's actually the performance that, that puts me off it. Yeah. The, the, the high energy of this band is maddening. Yes. It's a kind of Christian energy. <laughs> um, you know, I, I remember i remember my band supporting a band and they were called, I can't remember, its like Forget Thursday or some shit name. Yeah. But it rapidly emerged as they were playing their set that they were Christians and they wanted to sing about their faith. Uh. Um, and there was a moment i 'll never forget it um sort of for their last song where they one by one started putting their instruments down and coming out in the audience clapping oh. <laughs> trying to get us to join in fucking hell um that 's what that 's what um that 's what uh Blue Zoo remind me mm. of a pretty awful song with one good bit mm. um I can understand why they would have been predicted as the next Duran though because they're high they, they had an energetic performance let 's put it that yeah. way. Um, wherein the lead singer almost takes a tumble at one point. Yes, he does, yes. Um, But, yeah, um, not great, not great. No. I mean,
3: and it's all about the lead singer, isn't it? Because all the Kens are in black, and Mm. uh, he's got a red vest over a ripped-up white top and beige trousers with lizards printed on him.
4: He's he's yet another singer who honestly thinks that slavishly copying David Bowie's act will make him Mm. more like David Bowie instead of (laughs) making him even less like David Bowie than he was Mm. at first. Because the whole point is that David Bowie's act, copped by anyone other than David Bowie, is the fastest way to reveal your own fundamental ridiculousness and lack of charisma. Mm. Mm. Because the reason it worked for David Bowie is that it looked so ridiculous you couldn't believe it was working, but it was. Mm. And as such, it perfectly showcased David Bowie's own remarkable magnetism and natural showmanship. Mm. So it's almost like unwittingly he set a trap for plagiarists and imitators into which Mm. young men are still falling. Uh, But, yeah, Blue Zoo are almost the perfect example of that band who only formed because they wanted to be in a band. And... Proceeded to only do the things they thought you're supposed to do if you're in a band, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's that total lack of any kind of personal touch or individuality that makes them so hilarious and weirdly <laughs> satisfying. Because like with all bands like that, it's always the same. They end up being so of their time that, as Neil says, they look like they look like people from now dressed up for a comedy sketch. And yeah, yeah. They have that really distinctive aura of like a, a local band that got big locally because they were the only group that could play yes. and sort of put on a show. And some A&R man has alighted upon them and pushed them into the light, you know, convinced that this is their moment when really everyone can see that they're going nowhere because, I mean, pop is not a meritocracy, but there are certain... Rules. There's certain natural laws and balances which are absolute, and Blue Zoo fall foul of all of them. If you know anything about pop music, you can just look at this clip, and this is not going to happen.
2: I mean, they're proof, in a sense. Pop is often dismissed as being formulaic, but actually it's very rarely purely formulaic um and this is pure formula it, it, it's you know with no extra added value or anything yeah, yeah, which yeah. is what's essential to make pop happen so so what you've got is yeah a drummer who thinks if i do this to drums and a guitarist who thinks if i do this to a guitar a bassist who thinks you know so they all do what they think they ought to do yeah and of course it doesn't Ultimately, add up to, to anything yeah. because they're, they're all sticking so rigidly to those those formulas.
3: Yeah, they appear to me as a band that are just in the wrong place at the wrong time. If they'd have come out in 1981, they could have yeah. had a chance. But if they'd have come out in 1985, they would definitely be in with a shout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They are that kind of band you could see them in success coats. <laughs>
2: You know what I mean? But that's what's odd. It's a parody, but it already feels like a parody of something that's already gone, in a sense. But but yeah, you're right, in two, three years in in the Kajagoogoo age, I think they'd have been all right.
4: I don't know, there's too much about them that just reeks of, this will not happen, right? (laughs) Like, you know, the the lead singer is called Andy O. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is because his real name is Andrew Overall, um, but he didn't have the guts to just change his name and be, no. you know, Cha-Cha Moondragon or something. <laughs> he had to leave it hanging. And so, so, But its it sounds like he started to say his real name and mm-hmm. then drifted off halfway through because he's embarrassed. Like, so what's yeah. your name? Andy O.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't,
4: you know, everything about him is almost too perfect to be believable, right? Mm. Like, Because I look this up. First of all, he's from Braintree, which is absolutely the sort of town that bands like this would come from. Um, and best of all, he's obsessed with mushrooms and toadstools. Um, <laughs> is he now? Yes. <laughs> he started a club um, for people who are fascinated oh. by mushrooms and toadstools. Mm-hmm. And no. a website. Yeah, and a website which... Um, he actually called Fungi to be the Fucking hell. It's just perfect. It's just perfect. Of course that's what he'd call it because he has no imagination. Um, And he's still around. He's got a Twitter account, which is still very active. And every single tweet is about Um, (laughs) Fungi. <laughs> but, yeah, but 982 followers, so you know, we can't scoff more than them. us. No, yeah, fungi,
2: I mean, it's a fascinating me. part of the flora the and fauna, but um, well, you know what they come across like, you know, the band that Rodney's in, in Only Falls noises that then yeah. gets somewhere, uh, when Rodney's yeah. been kicked out. I imagine a bunch them, of Wallys, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> them getting signed and tarted up and cleaned up. This is what they'd have ended up like, like Cry Boy, like um, Blue Zoo song. yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. I noticed that the the cat on the stick makes a reappearance.
2: Yeah, and I wanted to burn it. It, There's something scary about that. It's like the... Did they not think? Did they not think if you give people things to wave about, they're going to wave them about? Of course, yeah. Idiots. Yeah, but it now holds the same sort of residual horror. Not to not to get too Derek Okora about it, 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 um, it, <laughs> it holds the same residual horror for me as, as memories of Hammer House of Horror mm. and that African statue that's in one of those episodes that really scared the shit out of me. Uh. So every time I see it cropping up on this episode, I get a little frizz on of fear.
3: I mean, Louise of Slough was was going on quite rightly about the. Uh... The, the brusque mannerisms of the, of the camera crew. The camera crew and the floor managers must have fucking hated doing this episode.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
3: Just so much shit to move, have to move about and so much.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
3: <laughs> oh, Can you imagine him in the pub afterwards just fucking hating <laughs> the world? So, the following week, Cry Boy Cry only moved up one place to number 34. But then he jumped up to number 21, stayed there for two weeks and would get as high as number 13. Fucking Ooh. hell. Jesus. However, the follow-up, Loved Ones an Angel would only get to number 76 in February of 1983. They never troubled the top 40 again, and after their second LP was only released in Yugoslavia, they split up in 1985. (laughs) That's when you know,
4: isn't it? Yeah, yeah,
2: Yeah, it's a bit of a giveaway, isn't it?
4: Yeah, that's when you know there's not much room in the charts
2: (laughs) for Blue Zoo.
0: Hello, I was just having a sip of someone I'm quite fond of. How would you like to have a real heartbreaker?
1: The
3: camera pans in on a coffin surrounded by the kids and assorted zoo wankers with a hand emerging from it. The lid is opened to... Well, what am I doing this suspension for? It's Simon Bates, isn't it? If it had been someone else, if it had been DLT or something, that would have been genuinely terrifying.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, it would or, have. Or, I don't know, Michael Rod. <laughs> <laughs> or someone like that. Well, what you'll notice when that lid opens, how many zoo wankers are around? Yeah. And, and and the reason being because the public are just ashamed at this point. Um, yeah. The punters can barely look at Bates um, because they know what a shoddy thing is going on here. Um, yeah. and, and it's what he says as well. Sip on someone. That's an unpleasant turn of phrase that brings yes. things to mind, a lot of unpleasant images. And yeah. with the zoo wankers kind of with their hands clawing for him. And then he breaks... Um, to announce the next record, of course. What looks like a massive heart-shaped piece of shortbread. What the yes. fuck is going on? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, genuine horror creeping through because of the shitness yet again. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about Zoo for a minute longer because mm. pop
3: shows throughout the ages have always had scenesters in it. But, you know, if you talk about the people who are in Ready, Steady, Go and things like that, they, they serve two very important purposes. Number one, here's what clothes you wear. And number two, here's the dance moves that that's going yeah. on nowadays, and Zoo do neither of that because you. you, you I'm sad to tell me, Nottingham as a 14 year old watching this, looking at Zoo, and you know if I had that mindset, I'd go, okay, then, so I've got to spend stupid amounts of money to look like a cunt, and I've got to do the same motion over and over again
2: through to every song. That's it. Beyond anything else, they're not good dancers, and and fundamentally, no. they're pushy. This is the 80s. They are pushy about themselves. You never got that feeling with Legs and Coat and definitely not with Pan's People. Pan's People and Legs and Coat felt confident and secure um, uh, uh, amongst themselves and in themselves to just try and do their best by the music. Zoo have a different agenda and that's where you get these cunts pushing themselves to the front and and with their mind presumably being on some better career or some better show that they could be on. Like the What No Meat advert. (laughs) <laughs> that arrogance that can only come from a lack of confidence is is what makes me hate them so much. I think.
1: Mm.
4: But let's not um, let's not ignore another amazing Bates anti joke, um, <laughs> where he, he where he's I mean he's dressed as a vampire, so you think he's going to do a vampire related joke. And instead...
3: Mm, yeah. We're really wrong fangs. Those fangs are just too big and cut. He's, He looks like a baby walrus, doesn't he? Yeah, it? yeah.
2: <laughs> They're too close together.
3: Yeah. Yeah. If you'd have got those fangs in Crazy Comic or something, you'd feel ripped off, wouldn't you? <laughs> totally.
2: But,
3: he snaps
4: this heart-shaped biscuit in half. And it's one... massive.
3: It's just, it's about it's, it's the size of his head, isn't yeah. it?
4: Yeah. Where did just...
3: they get that biscuit from? Yeah, you couldn't get those then. No, someone's gone to the trouble to make a massive heart shaped biscuit. Yeah, which
4: he then snaps with yeah. one powerful front paw. And, yeah. And he says,
3: with yeah. the hand that gripped a pig's cock. <laughs> and he
4: says, How would you like to have a real heartbreaker? That doesn't yeah. mean anything. No. no. There's no. something almost sort of zen about the meaninglessness. <laughs> of these they're like they're like dummy jokes you know like there's no yeah. actual mm. joke in it it's just the for the, the 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 shell of a joke and just the broken logical connections um it's like outsider art or something
2: yeah it's an experimental mm. joke where the joke has wandered into a kind of non-laughing zone
3: yeah yeah <laughs> but why you may ask is he breaking a massive heart-shaped biscuit because he's introducing the next video which is Heartbreaker by Dionne Warwick. Born in New Jersey in 1940, Marie Warwick's man was the manager of the Drinkard Singers, a local gospel group who did a bit of session work on the side. Whilst attending the Hart College of Music, she got stuck into session work herself and was spotted by Burt Bacharach in 1962 when she was backing the drifters on the song Mexican Divorce. After dropping out of school and signing to Scepter Records soon afterwards, she immediately established herself as the Afro-American Scylla Black. But over in the UK, she only had one top 10 hit in the 60s, Walk On By, which got to number 9 in May of 1964. In 1971, she signed the most lucrative record deal for a female singer at the time with Warner Brothers and added an E onto her surname on the advice of an astrologer. But she only scored one top 40 hit in the UK in the 70s when she teamed up with the Detroit Spinners and got Then Came You to number 29 in November of 1974. In 1979, she signed a deal with Arista Records and her career took off once again in America, leading to her becoming the original host of Solid Gold an American Go at Top of the Pops. This year, she's collaborated with the Bee Gees, who have written all but one song on her latest LP, Heartbreaker, and this is the lead-off single with the group backing her up. And it's a new entry this week at number 29. I, I, I can't believe Walk On By only got to number nine.
1: Hmm.
3: Yeah, Fucking stupid British cunts. <laughs> they deserve Brexit. <laughs>
4: There's a worse fact than that when we start to delve into the Dionne Warwick British chart history, but we'll come to that later. No, this was this was the know. first Dionne Warwick record I ever heard. Um, mm, yeah, because she did yeah. she did a lot Me of TV too. to promote yeah. this, and at the time I only remember registering two things. Right, first was here was a pop singer with grey hair. Which mm, seemed yeah. outrageous, right? But <laughs> yes. far more outrageous than green or orange yes. or yeah, blue. Yeah. Um, although she has black hair on the picture they use on the chart rundown. Just saying. Mm. Um, and it just that seemed She's like far, the anti-Toya, isn't she? Precisely. It seemed far <laughs> more unsettling and threat uh, and threatening. And secondly, the forced way in which she was always introduced as Dion Warwick. Like mm-hmm. they maybe make a point of pronouncing it like that, and they, they, someone must have said, "It actually, this is Dion Warwick." Make sure you say it like that, which nobody mm-hmm. ever called her. Like I, I've never met anyone who calls her that, you know. And <laughs> no. and it it's sort of. What
3: original f- name is is Warwick? W A W R I C K. It's W. W a r
2: W-A-R- w i c k, yeah, war. W a no, it's spelled Warwick, but you say Warwick.
4: Yeah, but oh, she- yes, I lives near a... Warwick.
2: You call it Warwick. You don't yeah, call yeah, it but...
4: Warwick. She was. Yeah, <laughs> right, let's let's settle oh, this. I got a given name, a real name is is Warwick, spelt W a w r i c k. So there's right. no uh, no ambiguity about this at all. But yeah, so here's a it's Dion Warwick, and yeah, I'm. As someone who would regularly visit Warwick Castle, which yeah. I was fairly sure had bagsied that word first, it seemed like <laughs> a typical, you know, American colonising of the language, which
3: I was mm. really
4: weirdly annoyed about at the age of 10.
3: Mm. I mean, I love Dionne Warwick, and the recent death of Aretha Franklin, it reminded me that in the, in the kind of like mid to late 80s, when I was full on into soul music and buying up old shit
1: Mm.
3: I had far more Dion Warwick and zero Aretha Franklin which is really weird and I look back now and go why was I like that and I I think it was because if you were a white lad into soul music it was the law that you had to revere Aretha Franklin and I thought oh no 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 I'm not going to go that way I'm going to go with this and you know I still now, if you talk about 60s output Dion Warwick over Aretha Franklin for me.
2: Well, I mean because of the song she sang, because of the background well, yes. data connection. I mean the yes. thing is with Dion was was she was never really like any other black female singers in as much as yes she had a gospel past yeah. But it never made its way into a recorded output. She was not a gospel singer. She was not and really She never a, oversold. No, it. she was never a soul belter or anything like that. No. She was a pop singer. She was absolutely yeah. a pop singer. And and that kind of and because of that, because of that absolute high standard of songs that she sang. She'd only lend her voice to these amazing songs by Bacharach and David. Um, yeah. she, has that, she has, I think, throughout her career, which makes it quite interesting to me, is that kind of frosty presence, in a sense. Um, yeah. Even yeah. in this, yeah. she doesn't really like this song. I don't think no, she, she liked didn't. the song. And you can tell in the performance of it. Um, it's clear when watching this that the bands that are around it, they never played on it. The drummer, the bassist, the guitar player, they're all getting it wrong, in a sense. Do you know what mm. I mean? They're not even getting the miming right. Only the yeah. backing vocalists are kind of getting it right. But even Dion. The black Blanche Devereaux, if you like, seems, <laughs> seems really disconnected with it. And, and you can almost, I mean, perhaps I'm reading into it, but I see a faint distaste in her having to sing it. Slightly yeah. annoyed almost that this has become her first big hit in a long time. Well, um, to be
4: fair, she did always look like that. Yeah,
2: yeah, that yeah maybe That's one so. of the
4: cool <laughs> things about her
2: absolutely absolutely she was absolutely just a pop singer and and really i never got the feel with dion that she was you know in the back of the van touring much she did she lent her voice to these incredible pop records now with 80s bg stuff i i have arguments with people because um i love shame reaction say the the one that Mm. they did with Diana Ross, even if it does make you picture the Gibb brothers having sex, not with each other, of course, but um, yeah. you know, they, they were kind of laughed at a lot in the 80s, the BGS, massive Chew sets and all of that. Um, yeah. And I have arguments with people about You Win Again. I can't remember if that's an 80s or a 90s song, but I fuck it. Yeah. It's 80s. It's, I can't stand that song, whereas other no, people absolutely love it. Um but on this heartbreaker, I hear this a lot on free radio eighties. It's played a lot, and it, and and mm. for me, it's it's settled into a nice warm kind of world alongside um Dolly and Dolly and Kenny's Islands in the Stream. It's that kind of song, yes. Um, yeah. which, which I I suspect Dion was not. I mean, yeah, she didn't like this song, did she? No, she didn't. <laughs> She didn't, and, and and neither do I really. Mm. It is so pebble mill at one. It is, but the Bee Gees smartly do throw in enough Baccarat-ish moments yeah. um, melodically uh, and just in yeah. the flow of the song to make people perhaps remember those old classics, but also accept yeah. this as a kind of new, new, new Dion. You know.
3: Yeah, but I I listen to this song now, and I just think. Why the fuck didn't the Bee Gees do this themselves? They would have done this far better than than, than she had. But mm. you know, this is 1982. The Bee Gees are are just
4: yeah. No, no one cares.
3: Yeah.
4: The thing about the Bee Gees is yeah. that uh, they were amazing songwriters, but they're actually not that versatile. And whatever they do, always sounds like a mm. Bee Gees mm. tune. Um, it's like with this, you can tell mm, it's yes. a yeah, Bee Gees yeah, tune yeah. without even looking it up. It's you can hear it a mile off. You know. Um yeah. And. Yeah, it doesn't suit
3: her. Isn't a Woman in Love by Barbara Streisand? Yeah, yeah. A- yeah again, yeah. another Bee Gees. I was going to ask, by the way,
4: is it bloke out of the Bee Gees playing the bass, or does it just look like him? I think it looks like him. Yeah, I can't see that he'd have gone just done that for a laugh. You know?
2: No, <laughs> I thought that was David Cronenberg. Actually,
4: <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely Gordon Banks on piano. Yeah,
2: right. <laughs>
4: no, <not at> <laughs> also, also i tell you what I was going to say. Um, my love is stronger than the universe, which is how this goes. It's such an awesome, yeah. meaningless mm. line. It's almost perfectly meaningless. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's hard to imagine a line that means yeah. less, you know. And it's not really what you want to yeah. hear Dion singing, is it? Do you know, like what she does best. No. is to sing lines which pierce right to the. To the protected hidden centre yeah. of your heart, you know, not cosmic bullshit yes. Yes. or yeah, 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 yeah. like similes that are so vague they mm. sound yeah. like empty air, you know. And you want some genuine drama in yeah. the arrangement to bring out the like the peculiar subtleties mm. and shading of her voice. Um, well this is a very yeah. smooth plot. Yeah. So that coupled with the fact that she wasn't keen yes. on it, it's no surprise that her singing is a bit functional on this record and I mean her voice still sounds mm. great mm. but it doesn't mm. really get to do anything um, and in a way the most mm. interesting bit is halfway through where like a wash of ambient studio audience noise comes up very quietly even though she's yeah. obviously not in the yeah. top of the pop studio yeah. at the same time as the
3: audience now there's no cats on a stick here is there <laughs>
2: God, she she wouldn't have put up with that. She no. would she would no. not have, she would have stormed <laughs> off. She would not have been on that episode at all. No, it sounds like
4: somebody's no. dozed off and lent on a fader. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. But I mean, in in the Bee Gees' attempt to write a Bacharach song and their failure in doing so, it just reveals how amazing those old Bacharach David and thems are. Because yes. there's there's that there, there just isn't the economy in this song that there is in a backrack song that, that, like Taylor says, just pierces your heart. Um, so yeah. you can see it in Dion's face when she has to deal with these slightly long lines with lots of words in them. There's a faint mm. wrinkle of the nose and a distaste for doing it yes. because Backrack and David would have got there easier and simpler and, crucially, yeah. made it sound natural as opposed to force, yes. which this record slightly sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And, also, and, love- and
4: also simple and natural, but at the same time, much more musically advanced because mm. most mm. of those songs have got like 14 key changes in and yeah. stuff, you know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah. really weird chord progressions, and you have to be a good singer to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, yeah, this is uh, sounds much more pedestrian and much mm. more. And the fact that they've put in a couple of little vocal runs that sort of vaguely echo. 60s, but Bacharach stuff. It does. Yeah, yeah. It, but still it's still just got that plodding chord progression mean. Yeah. yeah,
3: and 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 the 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 Bacharach songs that she did, you know, they could have been slow and mournful, but they were still pepped up musically.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, and they they just a pure injection of sunshine into into you listening to. Mm. Um, this hasn't really got that. it's, no, got, it's, that, it's got
4: that Mancunian
1: is, rain
2: in it.
4: Yeah, this record is missing an orchestra. But
2: you definitely,
3: oh. definitely not some not some session blokes in dinner jackets, <laughs> but she's got a nice outfit on. It's it's kind of like a, it's an ornate fuchsia,
2: kind of like Margot Ledbetter, drape <laughs> with Yeah, it's very Golden Girls, isn't it? Yeah. Gold leaves and black fringing. Yeah. And it's also nice. there's that little instrumental section where for five seconds, the song sounds like an Abba song. There's a little tiny bit, a little mm. that I really like, but Yeah, it's easily digestible, I guess, and it was comforting to people, but not one of Dion's best.
3: No, no, but it was the early 80s, so it didn't matter really, did it? (laughs) This is what people wanted. Yeah.
4: Do you think the main reason she always looked a little bit sour is because she had to spend most of the 60s being followed around by Scylla Black? Like yeah. professionally speaking, you know. Like it's yeah. like the sheer indignity of it. I mean you know the two of them recorded a lot of the same songs and Scylla mm. Black's version in this country, not in America, in this country, Scylla Black's versions generally did better. Which is yeah. just the fact that Cilla Black's version of anyone who had a heart went to number one. And yeah. Dion Warwick's version didn't. It's like you've got one of the most complex and expressive voices of the period just constantly being blotted out by one of the least complex and least <laughs> yeah. expressive and ugliest to the ear. You know, if you listen to Dionne Warwick singing Anyone Who Had a Heart, it's like the play of sunlight on water. And you listen to Scylla mm. Black singing, it's like staring into a bare it's light like bulb.
3: Rick is the <laughs> fucking canal. <laughs> it's like, and that's
4: even before you get to. Even before you add in the awareness of Cilla Black's ghastly personality, you know. Mm. You remember, Silla she, remember she, Black used to do that dairy milk advert in the 70s, yes. where she'd be on the street or at the train station and just walk up to people and yeah. shove a square of dairy milk into their mouths. Yes. And whenever that advert came on, my nan always used to say, We've uh, always walked down the street and she stuck a bit of chocolate in my mouth. i have bloody smack her one. <laughs> Which, if only that had happened, because as far as I'm concerned, yeah. that would have stood alongside my granddad's service in World War Two.
3: <laughs> so the following week, Heartbreaker soared twenty-four places to number
2: five, fucking out, and there spent two weeks at number two. The follow-up. Oh, sorry to interrupt, man. That's no. the power. That's the power of Top of the Pops. You see that with so many of these records this week. Yeah. The way they shoot up straight after appearing on top of the pots is amazing. Still got the power. Hmm? The follow-up, All the Love in the World,
3: would get to number 10 in January of 1983, but she'd have to wait until November of 1985 for her next and final top 10 hit when That's What Friends Are For got to number 16.
0: Warwick, and this is Halloween night on top of the pops. And when you work on Halloween night on top of the pops, you get to travel first class on a broomstick. Yet, yeah, but here a cheer for fears for you.
1: All around me are faces, places, faces.
3: We are assailed with the sight of Bates festooned in a long red cape and pointy green and pink hat on a broomstick... I can't believe I'm saying these words. (laughs) On a broomstick accompanied by the cat-faced zoo wanker as they soar across a background of a black paper cityscape with glittery infant school stars plastered over it. He reminds us once again that it's Halloween night when it clearly isn't and introduces the next act.
4: Look, the thing is, this is the best... Moment of the whole episode. Yes, it is. (laughs) Because Simon Bates. Astonishing. Simon Bates in an Ali Bongo hat. um, Yes. Yes, not even a witch. And a a red voluminous cape uh, flying over a cardboard cityscape on a broomstick with a sexy cat girl is the best Simon Bates that there could ever be. (laughs) And he should have done every link like this, even when it wasn't (laughs) Halloween. Just, yeah. He should have just worn it to do his radio show. Taking the cat <laughs> girl have, in. He should
3: have done it on the on the front of the videos. <laughs> you know what? Like, just make he's telling you the rating. Sexual swear words. <laughs> yes.
4: He should, make the, he, should, he should have done his show with the cat girl at his feet, in that suit, drinking out of a saucer of milk. It would have made him yes. less sinister.
3: <laughs> yes. Why isn't he dressed up as a witch? I
2: don't know. Did the know, BBC it's... think that was a bit too gay for 1982? Well, I was initially confused because of his costume. I thought he was on a magic carpet or something. Yeah. Because he looks like Ali fucking Barber, not a witch. Mm. Um, So, yeah. Yet more shitness that proves to be truly horrifying because of its shitness.
3: I think we're letting the side down here by only talking about it that quickly. It's something that needs to be seen. If you've not seen it, Pulp Gray's Youngsters, it's five seconds of of Top of the Pub's... I was going to say
2: gold... Top of the Pop's lead. The thing is, though, I know it's 82, right? It was a long time yeah. ago, but surely they could have done better than that. Yeah. <laughs> it's the kind of thing you'd see at the end of Midlands today where
3: someone's just gone, oh, you know, let's let's just do this and it'll take five seconds to do and
2: it's done. I don't think the production values on any other show are as bad as this. Or John Craven's news. Like, I see John Craven doing this. Um, John Craven, by the way, just by the by, was confusing me at the time because uh, this was round about the time when Imran Khan became quite famous as a Pakistani cricketer. Mm. You've never seen him in the same room together, admit it. So (laughs) that used to freak me the fuck out of it. Uh, And meanwhile, the production crew of The Tube
3: are just sitting there just rubbing their hands together thinking, oh, fucking hell, we can take these bastards. (laughs) Finally, he introduces the next act, which he calls... Tear for Fears with Mad World. We've already discussed Tears for Fears twice, and this is their third single from the two former members of the plastic mod band Graduate who only released one single, Elvis Should Play Scar. That's Costello, not Presley. It was written by Roland Orzabal in 1980 and was originally slated as the B-side of their previous single, Pale Shelter, which failed to chart. But Phonogram Records persuaded them to save it as a future A-side and bugger me gently, it's put them in the charts up this week from number 16 to number 6. Written in 1980, this could have been a scar song. (laughs) <laughs> and it does sound a bit you, when when you've got that in your head you, you, you hear the you can see lots of lots of bouncing up and down to that can't this, you? Got,
2: this got a ton of radio players I think I've said before yeah. I won't say much about this because I've spoken about Tears of Fears several times on Sharp Music but this was the Sandwich. one that I, this, yeah absolutely this was the one that I loved I loved this and then I saw the mm. video and just wished I hadn't and wished that they didn't look like that Um, yes it's a good record i'm sorry it's got no 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 i'm not nice needling guitar like the sort of falling piano and when you're young this kind of manageable moody darkness Mm. is cathartic to hear to a certain extent it's just whining about school and being a lonely git um but, um, yeah, that fucking dancing Orzebel does, though, in this video, really, really yeah. reminds me of uh, David Schneider in the day-to-day when he's dancing yes, to the theme yes. tune. Very, very similar. Not yes. got a lot to say about this. I would say Tears for Fears' best moment, though. Taylor, not spoken about Tears for Fears yet, have you? Come on in. <laughs> Join the circle.
4: Well, that moment where Roland Orzebel starts dancing on the jetty, I would say <laughs> yes. is the exact moment the Avant is end because after this, there can be no more thoughts of the past. Nothing (laughs) remains. Like, we're in a new world of stupidity and a a completely different kind of pomposity, and the world is Mm. changed utterly. Um, And then he does it again later, silhouetted against the sky.
3: Oh, God, yeah. I mean, we, we get the video, which primarily consists of Kurt Smith having a monk on by the kitchen window yeah. in a massive country house and Roland is outside uh, skulking about at first and then he goes into some full-on interpretive dance. <laughs> See,
4: there's a, I would say there's a sense in which this is a good record and another sense mm. in which it isn't. Um, <laughs> mm. And it gets a bit complicated. I mean, it's a nice enough tune and the synth mm. sounds are quite nice. But there's other yeah. things about it that are kind of horrible and off-putting. Like, I mean, part of the problem with Tears for Fears is that they're such a pair of lemon-sucking cunts. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, <laughs> yes. Have you ever seen a couple of faces that fucking sour on two mm. blokes that mm. young, right? It's yeah. like they look like... A couple of Daily Express readers out on their doorstep, silently watching a Muslim family moving in next door. It's that, <laughs> that expression, but forever.
1: like It yeah. N- yeah. never leaves
4: the faces. And it's a bit cheeky, I think, to go for this sort of tortured, sensitive, intellectual image when your music yeah. is so empty and you have literally nothing to say about anything. Um mm. It gives them this very phony air, which they wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, yeah, I remember them doing interviews talking about psychology and stuff, you know, um, mm. and they had no idea what they were on about. It's like they were into uh, that fraud, Arthur Janov, um, you know, mm. where they got their name from, of course. Which is, incidentally, one of the most exquisitely shit band names ever. You don't really, yes. you, just, you don't really hear it anymore because it's just you take it for granted. But yeah, Tears mm. for Fears is really bad um and the horrible (laughs) like the beatles like the beatles exactly and the horrible (laughs) title um of their horrible album songs from the big chair yeah it comes from that bullshit film sybil which is uh, very entertaining to watch but it's based entirely on a really dubious case history by a a highly dubious psycho psychoanalyst Um, they seem to just have this really crappy pop psych understanding of it all, which is reflected in their songs and the level on Mm. which they operate. Like the B side of this record is called um, Ideas as Opiates. I mean, that's just fucking awful, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And it's needless because they were perfectly capable of making, you know, listenable music. I mean, I think Mm. their great record is Pale Shelter. That's the one I mm. like because it seems to have all the good points of this record uh, but it's a bit less forced and it has a bit of momentum mm. of its own. And also the video to that is a proper early 80s pretentious music video and mm. genuinely good, I think. Very much in the hypnosis style but yeah, it, I think, I think it's, it's really, really entertaining um, mm. and it doesn't have that, that terrible primal nincompoop. So yeah.
3: <laughs> this kind of music is a definite progression from the sort of cheapo synthiness of your original you know Depeche mode and stuff like that, but also progressive in the wrong sense of the word. Mm. It's got ideas as as opiates it,
2: <laughs> It's erring in a direction that would end up in Howard Jones, I guess um, yes and, and that mix of synths and misery. Was perfected really by Soft Cell, who I loved at that age, but yeah, um,
3: but it's a good misery,
2: Soft Cell. Yeah, yeah, it's a universal misery, absolutely, and it's an it's a kind of outward looking misery, whereas this is just adolescently whiny yeah. and just annoying. But exactly. I was I was a, Soft uh,
3: Cell's misery is because the world shit. This is misery because they're miserable people. Mm,
2: yeah, absolutely, uh, spot on. Um, but I was a miserable cunt at the time. I mean, I was abin, but um, perhaps I was a miserable cunt at the time. I liked this record.
4: <laughs> this is why the that cover version that was a big hit recently oh, was God, much yeah. worse. Because the saving grace of this record is it sounds nice. Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas that was that sounded so sincere, and mm, yeah. instead of the focus being on the sound and the mood, it's on the sort of silly like the literal message that it's a mad world, man. Yeah. It's like bourgeois yeah. Yeah. angst, right? It's all the, the, It's got the aching self-absorption of the piano ballad and piano ballads only work when they're intimate and personal and vulnerable and not when they're passing off sort of vague, like pampered adolescent platitudes as heavy emotional wisdom, you know. Like, hey, have you ever thought about that?
3: It's a mad world. (laughs) The video is essentially two housemates, and one of them's really pissed off at the other one because he does nothing. He just dances all the time in the fucking front garden. There's that one bit where Roland picks up a ball and does a throw-in. And then goes in does his pieces again. And he's just like, why hasn't anybody done that at the World Cup or something? <laughs> Wouldn't that be fucking amazing if someone did a, a, a Tears for Fears reference in a football game? And then at the end, they, they do a bit of video trickery where Kurt's looking out the window and there's a shadow of Roland dancing. And mm. he, he just looks totally at the end of his tether. And you can hear him muttering <laughs> under his bed. He does fuck all cleaning up. He's, he's not paid his off of the fucking lecky bill. He just fucking dances in the garden and everyone's looking at him, the cunt.
4: At some point, he's going to have to inquire about his welfare. And that's... Mm. He, he He's not just yeah. going to say, no, I'm all right. No.
3: <laughs> no. So, the following week, Mad World nipped up three places to number three, where it stayed for three weeks. The follow-up, Change, got to number four for two weeks in February of 1983, and there'd be a regular chart fixture throughout the mid-80s. And of course, Mad World was re recorded by Michael Andrews and Gary Jules in 2002 and became the Christmas number one in 2003 because this century stinks of unwashed cock. <laughs>
0: This week, let's be serious and take a look at the charts and see what's happening in the top 30. A new entry at number 30, Be Proud, Be Loud, Be Heard from Toya. New in is Dion Warwick at 29 with Heartbreaker. At 28, Friend or Foe from Adamant. Zambezi at 27 for The Piranhas featuring Boring, Bob Drover. Carly Simons at 26 with Why. At 25, Never Gonna Give You Up from Sharon Red. The Pretenders are back on The Chain Gang at 24. 23, just what I always wanted, Mari Wilson. And imagination at 22 in the heat of the night. And here on top of the pops at 21, love's coming at you from <laughs> Melbourne Moore.
3: Bates puts the Halloween shit to one side before launching into the charts from 30 to 21, eventually resting on the number 21 song, Love's Coming At Ya, by Melba Moore. Born Beatrice Hill in New York in 1945, Melba Moore was the daughter of an R&B singer and a jazz pianist who began her recording career in 1967 when she cut some unreleased tunes which were eventually picked up on by the northern soul scene in the mid-80s. At the same time, she joined the cast of Hair, becoming the first black woman to replace a white one in a Broadway role when she took over from Diane Keaton and won a Tony Award in 1970 when she appeared in the musical Pearly. Two years later, she co-hosted a TV variety show with her then-partner Clifton Davis and then in 1976, she finally made the UK charts when This Is It got to number nine in June of that year. This is her first performance in the top 40 since then. And it's up this week from number 26 to number 21. Mm. And you can
4: tell this is a a repeat clip from a, a previous mm. week because it's a bit of a giveaway that no one in the crowd is dressed as a Dracula. Yeah. It sort of deflates the deflates the pumpkin a bit. Yeah. <laughs>
3: It does, yeah. Melba's kind of like alone on stage in front of a bank of lights and she's got this really nasty early 80s puffed out white blouse with pointy shoulders and a wazzy bow tie. Do you know who she looks like? This was bothering me. This is the only thing I've got to say about this song, which is alright, I like the song, but she is the black Cath Day night in Kath and Kim. She really fucking
2: is. I'll have to re watch it, yeah.
3: It's like she's dressed up for a night out with Kel at the local purveyors of quality meat dinner dance.
2: (laughs) Um, You know, in a a casino somewhere. Yeah, totally casino. She's got that croupier look, hasn't she? Yes. Yes. And, and also, I perceive, I perceive I mean, I see it a lot in black pop in general in the early 80s, just the massive mm. influence of Michael Jackson, um, not only in her look, yeah. but also yeah. in the song. I mean, if you're talking post-disco, as we were, as you could do about Raw Silk as well. Um, well, yeah, well, let's talk about that, because, you know, everyone goes on about
3: post-punk, but, you know, surely there must be... A genre called post disco, and, and this kind of stuff would be why. Why don't we talk about this as? as cr- I think I think whereas po- is it because it's black people and their their history doesn't matter as much. Uh,
2: I think perhaps post punk though sums up an awful lot of different diverse music. Post disco hmm. is. It's a bit, I don't know, it's quite a woolly term, really, because it, it, it could include all kinds of things. I think fundamentally what we're talking about is a greater interpolation of electronic elements into, into black dance music, fundamentally. And, uh, and the reintroduction of funk. Yeah, but also we we're talking about the disappearance of the chorus to a certain extent, and, and just, just mm. songs like this one. I mean, it, it, it's not a bad song, but really the entire performance for me is about that bass line, which is good, yeah, and the lights—the lights are fucking great. That light, that <laughs> bank of lights—I think they're fantastic. Yeah. They're one of the best yeah, things. It's sort to of see. like a chevron, isn't it? Yeah, and she looks great in front of it. She looks absolutely mm. great in front of it. But fundamentally, yeah, it, I guess post disco is about reducing the kind of amount of people who play on records fundamentally down to the producer. You could see Maroda was a kind of pioneer of post-disco to a certain extent, because yeah. there's no sense of a band playing on this. It feels completely electronic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and because of that, the light show really suits it. I, so as a performance, it does its best for this slightly mediocre song, I'd say. Um, mm. But the influence of MJ is just all over it in, in her croupier look and also the sound of the record.
3: Yeah, it
4: also continues the theme of this episode. Of there's a lot of older people appearing on this. Like she's yes. almost forty at this yeah. point. Yeah, and there's an awful. I mean, considering the presentation of this episode is so childish, um, <laughs> it's weird how much of the music is so adult oriented. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It also in that outfit doing that dancing at that age, it doesn't quite work. It's like, it uh, looks a little bit awkward. She, with To me, the awkwardness of her movements and the stiffness of that outfit, she looks like uh, a robot waiter that's gone haywire. <laughs> yes. And it's like, it's like she should have been spilling soup on the audience and you know, cramming <laughs> bread rolls in there for just repeating like
3: still or sparkling, still or sparkling. <laughs> bashing people's faces in with a tin tray. Like Until a-, a tongue comes out on a spring. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, it's a horrible vision of the future. Um and yeah, it's like it's true. It's all this record is is a decent groove, but it's and she just sort of caws over the top because she's got quite a piercing voice. And the song doesn't mm. give her anything to do with it. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, that liquid bass and, and with the electric piano it was a very contemporary sound. But we've already heard it done with a lot more subtlety and grace on records like Forget Me Nots by Patrice Rush. And, right, and then, yes. And this is very straight ahead and unengaging by comparison. Mm. I think the best thing you can say about Melba Moore is that she did the decent thing and she did put out an album called Peach Melba. Mm. You have to. In the same way that. Yeah,
3: you can't. There's no escape from that, is there?
4: In the same way that Bobby Gentry did put out an album called Landed Gentry, right? (laughs) And Gary Moore did put out an album called We Want More. It's (laughs) the honourable thing to do. Oh, and. and Peebo Bryson never did put out an album called Mushy Peebo, which <laughs> yeah. obviously should have done, like full of those soupy Mus- yeah. ballads. And it just, it never happened. And I've never forgiven, never forgiven. That.
3: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, at the time, this song would have just washed over me. It was, it was funky belt music. Yeah. Yeah. Still does. So the following week, Love's coming at you, jumped six places to number 15, its highest position. The follow-up, mind up tonight, got to number twenty-two in January of nineteen eighty-three. Her last whiff of the top forty. There you go, Melba was toast.
2: <laughs> <laughs> fucking hell,
4: I'm so shit today. I'm so excuse my spinning bow tie.
2: <laughs> that was worthy of Richard DiGent's Taylor. You should be proud.
1: <laughs>
0: on top of the box, it's nice to have our producer back with us. Here's the charts. At 20, Evelyn King, Love Come Down. Number 19, Shaken Stevens, I'll Be Satisfied. The double A side for The Clash is at number 18. Jackie Wilson Said, Next is Midnight Runners at 17. Cool and the Gang at 16 with Ooh La La. At 15, Bauhaus and Ziggy Stardust. And only for the Animals at 14, House of the Rising Sun. 13, Reap the Wild Wind by Ultravox. At 12, The Pinkies and Danger Games. And here's Eddie Grant, Don't Wanna Dance, at number 11.
3: holding a shrunken head, which he then seems to lob into the crowd like Brian Jones throwing a tambourine that he's sharpened the edges off, runs down the chart from number 20 to number 11. Clearly, the the Halloween theme's run out of steam by now, hasn't it? If only he'd have said school fuckery. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) He eventually pitches into the video for I Don't Want to Dance by Eddie Grant. Born in place on Skiana in 1948, Eddie Grant moved to London at the age of 12, and after seeing a Chuck Berry gig, was inspired to have a go at a musical career. In 1965, he and some schoolmates formed The Equals, a multiracial beat combo who scored six top 40 hits in the late 60s, including Baby Come Back, which got to number one in July of 1968. In September of 1969, however, the band were involved in a motorway accident during a tour of Germany, leading to Grant suffering from health problems, which eventually led to a heart attack and collapsed lung, and the band split up in 1971. After returning to Guyana to recuperate, Grant came back to London a year later, set up his own studio in 1972, and formed his own label, Ice Records, in 1974. A year later, He began his own solo career and he scored his first chart hit in June of 1979 when Living on the Frontline got to number 11, followed up with Do You Feel My Love, which got to number 8 in December of 1980. By 1982, he's relocated to Barbados and released this single, the follow-up to I Love You, Yes, I Love You, which got to number 37 in August of 1981, and it's the first cut from his new LP. Killer on the Rampage. And it's soared up the charts this week from number 30 to number 11 and is accompanied by a video set on the shores of his new manor. Yeah, quite the video, isn't it, this? (laughs) I mean, the video is essentially him on his floating muso platform Mm. with uh, two stools and a guitar. um, And he's just minding his own business while his missus stands on the shore doing that hands on the hips and stampy foot thing.
2: It's a simplistic video for a simplistic song really. Um, it's very simplistic you know, very song, simplistic. Isn't it, song. I mean we are we're sort of in the thick of sort of three reggae number ones in a row, isn't it? Now because you've yes. got Musical Youth, Culture Club obviously, and yeah. then Eddie Grant. And of course yes. you can see the power of top of the pops on the charts, the way that Grant and Dion Warwick and Tears of Fear shoot up the charts after this episode. Mm. They're in the top four really until eighty two reasserts itself a bit more with Human League and the jam coming back in. The record by public, yeah. as you said earlier, Al. They're an un- unpredictable bunch of cunts, aren't they? As you saying about Dion. Well, the word there. Yeah, about Dion. They can always be depended upon to lift someone's worth worst shit to the top. Um, yeah. so the clumpy ugliness of this almost seems like deliberately yeah. simplistic given the sophistication of a lot of Grant's music the, the, the songs you've mentioned and, and Give Me Hope Joe and things like that and, and Electric yeah. Avenue are great and even back in The Equals of course Baby Come Back and you know that yeah. song Black Skin Blue Eyed Boys um, The Equals did yes. fantastic. but you yeah. know he he's very much a pioneer isn't he Eddie oh absolutely Grant, in his own he way. possibly doesn't get his full due but this song I mean the clumpy ugliness of it yeah well he doesn't want to dance I don't fucking want I don't think anyone would want to dance to this who could because no. you just have to clump no. and stomp in a really tiring yes. way. but I think yeah what a shame what a shame he wasn't there in the studio with a couple of Frankensteins. Yeah. it would have been perfect wouldn't it <laughs> I think the singer long ability of this really yeah not just by grown-up adult pop fans but by kids in playgrounds and stuff um and, and just in general, the gloominess of it was always going to make it a hit in Britain. Yeah. A song about not wanting yeah. to dance because you feel so bad. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and the thing is, obviously, I, I mean, uh, he did better records, but this is the one, actually, that I think really ingrained him into the public consciousness in a big way. So within a yes. matter of, you know, weeks, I guess, you've got Lenny Henry doing Eddie Grunt on Three of a Kind, his parody of <laughs> yes. it. And I, I, I think also another crucial thing to this record's success was probably the amount of radio play it got. in as much as Radio 1 DJs love tracks they can interrupt, and I remember hearing this, and of course with the line, I love your personality, Steve fucking Riot, or whoever felt like being funny that day, would chip in with, oh, thank you, you know. um, Yeah. You know. So in a few weeks' time, this gets to number one, um, with Mm -hmm. Dion at number two, and Human League's Mirror Man at number three. Um, But... Yeah, possibly my least favourite Eddie Grant song, but it, its it's yeah. long ability is just irrefutable. You just need to read the title and it's in your head in a way. Yeah, I mean, Living on the Frontline's a fucking brilliant song. Oh, it's fantastic. Song. Give Me Hope, Joanna's
3: a great song as well. And he, and he, and he was forging the kind of like the rock reggae um,
2: thing really well. And when this came along, it was like, oh. But it's almost as if he thought, right, I did all that really amazing complex stuff and it didn't become a yeah. big hit. I'm just going to give them this song that is so... like It's not even thuggishly simplistic. It's just... It's a, a, it's almost like a two-year-old could have written this. But I suppose it takes yeah. a bit of genius to write something so simple and immediate. Um, yeah. But not a song I kind of really want to hear again, do you know what I mean? But I doubtless will hear it again loads of times.
3: In the issue of smash hits that had just come out, he's uh, he's, he's got a little interview in the bits section, and he's... Making it very clear that he's, he's, he's moved to Barbados so we can have a bit of a crack at the American market. Mm. You know, he's, he's moving away from the UK. And when you, you read that, you think uh, this song makes a bit more sense now. But it's for the Brett Kavanaughs of the world. <laughs> and he's
2: not tarted the song up at all. The production no. just keeps it down to the boom, boom, boom. It just mm. has that, yeah, that simple thump. To the end of every line that that makes it undanceable. Actually,
3: we're over a year removed from the death of Bob Marley. Do you think? Oh, I'm, I can, uh, I, I can fill a little spot there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. He's thinking that. But I mean, when you think about you know the reggae song that saw out 1981, Ghost Town, and then you mm. think about these reggae hits that are in the charts now, Musical yeah. Youth, Culture Club, Eddie Grant. It, it is a kind of it's not a neutering of reggae, but it, it but it is reggae becoming. Yeah, something that you can use to to transmit something less complex perhaps.
4: Yeah. This video is I think a big part of why this record was such a big hit. Yeah. Because I remember at the time it was for some reason it was a real talking point. People this is one of the videos I remember best from 1982. Mm. I think because it was shot somewhere exotic, and people mm. just—it was still people like to see it on the telly. You know, yeah. oh, that looks nice. You know, it looks...
3: I mean, yeah, because it, because it, you know, it's, it's just a floating little floating dock and a stall, and uh, it—it's it, essentially a, a Caribbean shed, isn't it? <laughs> He's getting some air roll off the missus, Oh, I'm going yeah. to me dock. Yeah.
4: I think we thought it was funny because mm. he was buried up to his deck on the beach, mm. like it. Of comet, course, yes. And then floating on that big tile. Out on the mm. water. It's like a Je sans frontier type water platform. Yes. It's like he's a, like he should be leaping onto it dressed as a giant foam chef or <laughs> yes. you know, some yes. horrible Central European humanoid, you know, and going yeah. ass over tit into the drink. Um, yeah. and it's but it's what's weird about this record is that there's a weird mix on it, and I don't know if it's just a mix for the video. Because I've never heard it without seeing the video at the same time, mm. um, it rolls the bass right off to the point where you can barely hear it, mm. which is a yes. bold choice for a reggae record, um, and it does have the effect of making past the Duchy sound roots by comparison. You know,
3: <laughs> Neil, why was Reggae Light so popular in
2: 1982? Mm. Well. It is odd because because what we see previous to eighty two is the reggae that does get in the charts. It, yeah, it's kind of the proper stuff, if you like. It, it's, yes, it's not yeah, uptown top ranking and stuff like but that. But I think fundamentally, we're talking about a generation of kids now who have grown up. I mean, by eighty two, who've grown up with that music. Mm. And are now seeing it processed and turned into pure pop music, in a sense that it that yeah. can kind of lose its its Jamaican roots to a certain extent and just become another pop song. Um, yeah, uh, uh, you know, absolutely in embla- uh, you know, embodied by by Culture Club being at the top of the charts. Um, so yes. reggae, is, I'm not saying reggae mm. has become an effect of pop, but it's become another type of pop music to do. It belongs to the world. Yeah, right now. it's become another po- type of pop music that you can do, and you don't have to feel any kind mm. of Uh, cultural prohibition about about engaging with that music so so you're gonna see lighter poppier singles start happening Mm. as soon as that barrier has been broken down a little bit Mm.
4: but also something bad happened to the sound of reggae in the early 80s like the production of Mm. it right like not just the pop stuff like this but the genre as a whole lost that sort of awesome woody depth yeah, and the the yeah. sort of vicious edge that makes seventies reggae so amazing, and the sound got a little bit dinky and mm. a little bit Pigeon yes. Street, you know what I mean? Mm. So yes,
3: very Pigeon Street. Even really
4: good stuff from that period, like so yeah, but like Barrington Levy stuff and that, it's got a sort of thin perspex feel yeah. to it. Yeah,
2: yeah.
3: It was because synths were being
2: introduced. Yeah, partly, but I mean the electronic uh sort of things getting into reggae were actually I mean they were leading to some pretty fascinating records in dance hall mm. certainly but perhaps yeah. not in reggae but I mean the Barrington Levy thing that Taylor's mentioning when you listen to um uh, what is it, Englishman or country I can't remember what it's called now but it's a scientist production and mm. it's it's fantastic but that you don't really hear that in Musical Youth Culture Club or Eddie Grant what you mm. hear is a kind of modernity of production but applied to what would essentially be a Rocksteady or Roots tune, sort of five years ago, a pop tune. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the, it is odd, this production. What, what Taylor says, it's odd to hear the bass driven out so much to the extent where all you can hear is that kind of weedy, cheesy synth line and, yeah. and the drums, and that's it. That it hasn't got that bottom end. You're not going to hear the bottom end much on the top of the pops broadcast anyway, no. but it does seem to have absconded completely.
4: But yeah. also, when you listen to what the bass player's doing... Um, he is actually trying to put some movement into it. Yeah. there's some quite melodic bass runs on that. But they don't provide that sort of movement and syncopation because it's so low. Um, hmm. it's, and so you just get that sort of loping beat. And I mean, I don't think this is even a bad song. I think it's, uh, it grows yeah. on me every time I hear it. And it's very yeah. catchy. Yeah. Um, it's just got nothing to it. It sounds yeah, it sounds like it should be the song that Ringo sings on a mid-60s Beatles <laughs> album, do you know yes. what I mean? Or uh, yes. No, actually, scrub that. It sounds like the song that Barry Wom would sing on a mid-60s Rutles <laughs> album. It's like, uh, you
0: know, oh, I love your personality.
4: <laughs> it's the, although that lyric really confuses me because he says, I love your personality. But when you look at the video, she's actually a bit of a nightmare. And she, you yeah. know, she's stomping her foot in the shallows, and you and know. And it's why
3: don't
2: why don't she get into a fucking boat and have it out with him? Well, she, that's what could, she does end up on it, doesn't she? She does end up on the floating tile at the end.
3: Oh, yeah, he gets round her in the end. <laughs> he's, he's probably gone to the floating all-night garage and got some Ferrero Rocher and some flowers or something.
4: So that, that floating tile, which looks like it should have six empty plastic barrels lashed to the underside. Yes. And uh, I'm thinking, <laughs> just keep a close eye on the
3: weather forecast, you know.
4: Yeah. That Caribbean yeah, yeah. weather is very changeable. But, I mean, she also buries him up to his neck on the beach
3: yeah, I mean mm. we don't see that but we know she's done that.
4: Yeah, and she sits there stuffing her face with mangoes and then yeah. runs off with some <laughs> some surfers and leaves him there. So yeah, that's yeah. a nice personality. don't fucking what was his last girlfriend like? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes. nailed his cock to the back of an aeroplane <laughs> while it was taxiing down the <laughs> runway. And he's there going I I got to say she's a breath of fresh
2: air. <laughs> <laughs> but the shocking this thing one. is he really does look <laughs> bowed <buried laughs> up to his neck. It's not like he's um, like lying flat and they've just mm, sort of managed yeah. to do it. He does look up And he's a big bloke, Eddie Grant. So that must have taken some work.
4: One thing I know about Eddie Grant is that he proudly never smoked marijuana. That's what he, <laughs> he says. That enti- that's entirely his business. But in a way, that's what this is. It's a reggae record by and for people mm. who don't mm. smoke marijuana. So yeah. it's a little bit thin and a little bit lacking in mystery. But, you know, I don't know if that makes it a bad record. It's just a yeah. pop record.
2: Yeah, it's for the kiddies and the old folks. Yeah. That's the thing, this record. It's not just... I think it's more for the old folks and the kiddies. <laughs> yeah, I remember this, the feeling is bad, just getting sung a lot in playgrounds for some reason. And and it, I think it's just... Right. A kid could get this song within about 20 seconds. I think that says more about schools in Coventry than... Uh... <laughs> The popularity of Eddie Grant though, Neil. Maybe so, maybe so. But
4: it's true at the time that reggae uh, appealed to kids as soon as they. Oh heard yeah. It. I mean, mm. we all like this at the time, and Electric Avenue, um, just instinctively. Electric Avenue's good, yeah. Just, but it's like yeah. knowing and understanding nothing about the form, you know. We just liked yeah. it, yeah, and it was also around this time that reggae displaced folk. As the officially sanctioned music of childhood, you know, you watch kids around the time
3: that UB40 re-recorded the theme tune to "You and Me." Right, right, exactly. Mm, Right. Although
4: that only lasted about five years, and then it was superseded by rap because then yes, teachers loved it because you could get kids to write a rap, you know, about what you did on the weekend, you know.
2: But in that fertile five years, yeah, things like Pigeon Street absolutely made reggae the sound of childhood. So the following week, I Don't Want to Dance jumped
3: nine places to number two and the week later got to number one, where it stayed for three weeks before being usurped by Beat Surrender by The Jam. The follow-up, Electric Avenue, got to number two in February of 1983, held off the top spot by Men at Works Down Under but he'd have to wait five years for his next and last chart hit, Give Me Hope, Joanna, which got to number seven in March of 1988.
0: Don't want to dance. Don't want to dance. I don't want to dance. dance, dance. Oh, party on top of the box, and that's Eddie ground I Don't Want to Dance. Let's take a look at the British top ten, see what's happening. Ah! Mary Manilow's at number 10, I Wanna Do It With You. At number nine, Chicago, Hard To Say I'm Sorry. Fat Larry's Band and Zoom is at number eight. At seven, Lifeline, Spandau Ballet. Mad World by Tears For Fears is at number six. Past the Dutchie, Musical Youth, at number five. At four, Love Me Do by The Beatles. And three, same as last week, Kids From Fame with Starmaker. Up goes Kit Creole, Annie I'm Not Your Daddy at number two. And Culture Club at number one again with Do You Really Want to Hurt Me?
3: Bates! Back in the crowd as the show has clearly had enough of all the Halloween bollocks. (laughs) Runs down the top ten culminating in Do You Really Want to Hurt Me by Culture Club. We've already discussed Culture Club in chart music number 16 and this, their third single, is the follow-up to I'm Afraid of Me, which fell to chart. Five weeks ago, this single entered the charts at number 38 to Little Fanfare, But the night before that week's episode of Top of the Pops was recorded, Shaking Stevens pulled out of a performance of Give Me Your Heart Tonight due to illness and Culture Club were drafted in at the last minute, leading to debates about gender issues in playgrounds right across the country. The following week, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me soared 23 places to number 15, then to number 3, then to number 2, and finally to number 1, knocking past the Dutchie by Musical Youth off the top spot. This is its second week at number 1, and here they are, back in the studio. Talking of the charts, was there anything in the top 30 this week you failed to remember? Very little for me, nothing for me actually, I remember all of it.
2: Yeah. I think I think I was the same.
4: Be Loud, Be Proud, Be Heard by Toya.
3: You must know that one. Uh, no, I managed to escape that one. So anyway, Neil, we've already established in a previous uh, episode of Chart Music that this is one of the greatest lovers' rock songs ever. It
2: fucking is, man. It's, it's great. I mean, uh, you know, for me, the, all the performances of this... Are up there, you know, with Janet Kay and Susan Cadogan and, and and people mm. like that. Um, mm. This is uh, the fourth performance of this song on Top of the Pops, and yes. we're kind of used to Boy George now. So at yeah. this point, it's a decision as to whether you actually like him or not. I think. Yeah. And and I think you know fatally Karma Chameleon put me off checking out Coach Club albums rather foolishly, but I remember yeah. loving this. Uh, Amazing song production, stunning vocal, none of that needs saying. I I, I think what it does make you realise watching this particular performance is that being a pop star is tough. You learn things that you don't learn if you're normal Mm. (laughs) until you're much older, such as balloons are not fun and are actually really annoying apart yeah, from yeah i uh, mean loads uh, of orange and black
3: balloons yeah. suddenly descended from nowhere and it's got to be said that certain sections of the audience are
2: aggressively lobbing them at george they are completely to try and put him off i mean the thing is there's lots of types of performance that we've seen on top of the pops doing all these chart music pod- podcasts and there's there's the there's the ones who just kind of fuck it off and smirk through it there's the ones who are instantly confident you know like yeah. frankie i would say were instantly confident yeah and and then there's those lovely ones, and I'd say that Culture Club is one of these, that just get better week by week. Um, yeah. And Madness are another good example of that. I would say Madness in general had so many hits, they just got better and better and better at Top of the Pops. Um, yeah. Culture Club, I think, get better as time goes on. George, by then, four weeks into pretty much stardom, he must have felt yeah. like a target by then, not just from balloons. So there's yeah. a kind of struggle there already, a slight, a slight fear... Um, that makes his confidence at getting the song across um, almost heroic at this point. I mean, they're they're kind of on the brink to real international stellar stardom. So, you know, I could never get enough of this song. And I think the performance, you're starting to see the kind of hostility that George would get um, and less of the affection to a certain extent, although the applause they get at the end is is, is really big. I do think he's become a target by now, You know, we always say that but the, the first appearance of Culture Club on
3: Top of the Pops is one of the landmark mm-hmm. moments of, of the show. Uh, but, you know, it's got to be said that if Culture Club had appeared on Top of the Pops singing something like Cry Boy Cry,
2: who mm.
3: would have given a fuck.
2: Yeah, yeah. It
3: would have been just that song with that weird bloke that disappeared. But... This song is fucking amazing. It's, it's one of the greatest songs, of, definitely one of the greatest songs
2: of the 80s. It's one of the best AM radio songs I know. When I hear it still, it just moves me massively. The vocal, mm. the production, just everything about it. It's just a stunning, stunning record.
3: Yeah.
4: See, I, I know this is an unpopular opinion, but oh. I don't really like this record, and I don't really like Boy George. Um, right. I accept that he provided a valuable service at this point in history. And he opened up certain areas and made certain things a bit freer and potentially more interesting. And I don't want to wave away those positive effects of somebody like Boy George becoming a pop megastar at this point, because there were many. But Mm. I just think that all of those positives came from just that, someone like Boy George becoming that famous. Very few of them come Mm. from Boy George himself. And I can't help wondering what might have happened had... His place been taken by someone equally uh, adventurous in their way and androgynous, but a bit more inspiring and creative and interesting. Um, and, you know, he gets a lot of credit for being a great singer, but I don't hear that either. Um, to me, right. I don't like that curdled, whispering style. And when he opens up his throat and sings out, I don't like it sounds nasal and yelpy to me, you know. I mean... I'd rather listen to Simon Le Bon, who is technically much worse and even more nasal and yelpy, but who isn't trying to masquerade as a good singer. He's just yelping and and having fun, you know. And Mm. I don't really like any of their records except for Time, Clock of the Heart. And Mm. I'm always wary of the fact that Boy George comes across as one of those people who acts like he's fundamentally superior to you because he's put some funny clothes on, which is a great London tradition. And also I know it's awkward, but I just I don't see how, you know, singing Bow Down Mister and saying you prefer a cup of tea to sex um really makes up for things like uh imprisoning and violently assaulting a young male escort and then swanning well, yeah, to a career in primetime TV. I just think if Simon LeBon or Tony Hadley had handcuffed a young female escort to a radiator against her will Mm. and beaten her up with a metal chain uh, for no apparent reason and were found guilty in court and did time, I don't think they'd have been allowed to become a national treasure and get Mm. a 300 grand contract as a mentor on The Voice, right? And I don't know what that says about society's attitude to gay men. It's really weird. I think a part of it is people think, oh, that's just the sort of thing they do. In their, yeah, you know, in their nether world, you know, in their shadowy demi monde, it's
3: the- well, you know, we, we 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 even now we still feel that um, male victims of sexual assault, you know, they they could have prevented it.
4: Yeah, it's I, I don't know. I just there's just a thing in the back of society's collective mind that it's like Leopold and Loeb you know and this is just that's just what it's like you don't want to get involved Mm. it's their world and Mm -hmm. you know I mean look I don't believe in wiping people out of history for their misdemeanours and I do believe in separating the art and the artist and I know some people have done Mm. worse and it was a long time ago and he was ill with drugs you know But still, Mm. this isn't a bloke who got pissed and was a cunt to his wife, you know, or who sleezed over his secretary or something. I mean, it's a kidnapped and violently assaulted a stranger. And it just surprises me that it's still waved aside as if it as if it never happened. And I'm not being self-righteous because, you know, I've Mm. had mental health issues. You always end up being a cunt to somebody, but not Mm. usually in the same universe as that. You know, and yet I'm full of guilt and shame, and I've never been forgiven by anyone ever. Whereas Boy George just keeps on trucking, and nobody seems to care, despite him going that far over the line. And I think that would be more understandable if he'd contributed some lasting statement or exploration of personal turmoil and internal darkness, or if he'd completely rewritten the rules of pop or something. You know, people are inclined to let you off. Was in fact, he sang Karma Chameleon and war is stupid and people are stupid and then got whacked out on smack. Well, you know, okay, but it just doesn't seem like very much to me, you know. Um, I don't hate him. I just think, you know, he just doesn't strike me as a very appealing figure. Um, Well...
2: I know what you're saying, but to be honest with you, I don't listen to many appealing figures. I mean, I, I, <laughs> this is true, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, as a hip hop fan, clearly, you know, yeah. you know, I don't listen that the whole separation of art and the artist is obviously, you know, it's a long, long debate. I, I, I for a long, long time, I've just had to accept that most of the people who make the music I like are horrible individuals and horrible people. So that that incident, I'm not saying I, when I hear this record, and I must stress this record. It mm. it when I hear it now, it's a transmission from a heart. It's not really affiliated with a person, if you like. It it's mm. just this three minutes. It's that three mm. minutes, and I find them utterly st- spellbinding. I know what Taylor's on about about the voice yes. and those kind of traits. I would possibly dislike in others, but there's just something about this record that for me is just just. Yeah, this is this is a pop critic basically saying he can't do his job because I'm talking about <laughs> magic and something I can't quite put into words. But it just mm. it gets me every fucking time. It gets me and and yeah. it keeps getting me. And that has to mean something. That means that has to mean that something special is occurring here. Um, you know what he did? Yeah, of course, absolutely horrible behaviour. But God, I mean, if we had to throw out. The records made by horrible people, we'd end up with with what? What would we end up with? Um, oh yeah, don't
4: get me wrong. I mean, I you know I listen to Charles Manson's music. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, a, it's just it's it's a. I wouldn't care about that if I enjoyed the music, and I don't and, really yeah. care about it in terms of the music. It's not connected to that to me. It's just, just his status as a sort of a you know. This lovable national treasure, that's what bothers me, really. Yeah, I know uh, what you mean, uh, but
2: I, I think that lovable national treasure thing has undoubtedly been. I mean, that's why it surprised me when he got that job on The Voice or whatever it was, because I think that had been, I thought that had been tarnished somewhat by, um, by, by his, uh, you know, what he'd done. Um, but yeah. I'm not sure whether he is still a national treasure. Of course, time just makes people forget everything. So, doubtless, in about five years, that mm-hmm. way, And it makes lovers feel that they've got something real. <laughs> <laughs> well, quite. But I just think lyrically, sonically, I love this song.
3: Yeah, would it be would it be a better song if
2: it would have been recorded by a black girl? Um, I don't think would be, it have been as big a hit. Possibly not as big a hit. It would have been just as lovely a song. But there's there's mm. but for me, this is one of those records that is it's a it's a captured moment of just like. And, and and everyone involved is crucial to that moment the egos yeah. of everyone involved and the pers- the personas and people involved it, it cannot be recreated to a certain extent that's the way it feels mm. to me that's why yeah. when you hear the intro of this you know I, like i say i listen to a lot of free radio in the car free radio 80s which is a terrible terrible station but mm. when this comes out of the fucking mr mr stew that surrounds it it's mm. it's a lovely moment and it still lifts my heart
4: yeah I'll tell you what's weird as well when you look at it now. Um, I remember all the discussion at the time that nobody could tell if it was a boy or a girl, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You look at it now, of course it's a bloody boy. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. He looks, like a, he looks like a rugby player. Like, yeah,
3: that's what, I, that's what I felt at the time. There's a clue in the name.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's,
3: there's a clue in both
2: the fucking names.
4: I mean, you know, he, he never made the secret of it the fact that he was no, a man
2: you say that now when you watch this on Top of the Pops the first time did you see that first performance because I, I I mean yeah. maybe I'm yes. an idiot but I was a bit confused and there was a debate in the playground the next day and and I remember being confused about it because he looked. looks yeah, but is it in, yeah, in 1982 yeah, I, well, I'm older than you in 82 yeah, was yeah. yeah
1: in
4: 1982 people didn't know anything about anything did they that's the thing <laughs> nobody did <laughs> it's like nobody understood you know the difference between an androgynous dresser you know, mm. and a transvestite and a trans person. And, like, nobody knew anything about any of that stuff. It was just, no. you know, it's like if you, It was just he had makeup on, therefore... Oh, I said it a woman? You know what I mean? yeah. yeah. So, and you, you look at it now and he's not even wearing anything you would yeah, think yeah. of as yeah, totally. female yeah. clothing. He's got a big black hat no. and a long black coat and some hair hanging down. So he looks more like a rabbi. Yes. a woman yes um, it's yeah. really strange but yeah, yeah
3: back then nobody yeah. knew anything about anything I, I know I've mentioned this before but I've got to chuck it in again the first appearance of Culture Club on Top of the Pops and they came out and Boy George sang do you really want to hurt me and my dad was over his steak and chips or whatever and he just looked up and said yes yeah." that's when I knew it was a bloke and that's when I started liking him because mm. anything that winds up your dad when you're Fourteen is is all right with you.
4: See, I remember my great aunt, who was ancient at this point, um, saying to me, "You don't like Georgie, do you?" With his curls. <laughs> and after establishing that, you know, that she didn't mean George Gershwin or George or the Fifth, um, <laughs> I think I just assumed that she hated him because he was a, a, a quote gender bender. And pointlessly started trying to defend that, you know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. At which point she, uh, like, to, to my 86-year-old great aunt, you know. At which point she cut across me and she was like, I don't care about that. I don't like him because he's a bloody paddy. <laughs> <laughs> now, considering that, considering that almost all of my family also were paddies, that makes that one hard to decipher. But mm-hmm. then it's, it is a peculiar world.
2: But I think we forget now that 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 the hostility Boy got um, very very quickly once it was established. You know what yeah. they were, who it who it was, um, was really quite ferocious. I, I seem to recall. Yeah. Um, and and it wasn't. I I wouldn't say it was explicitly a homophobic hatred. Um, his sexuality and who he was singing the song about um wouldn't come out for ages and yeah. and it never occurred to most of us as listeners that there was a gay thing going on here apart from maybe my mum of course but um yes. <laughs> you know the hostility was precisely because of the confusion that he sowed yeah, yeah. people mm. resented that confusion and and consequently the hostility that george would have been facing by now by the time we see this performance would have been you know immense and and would have been nationwide in a way mm. that i don't know johnny rotten's the hatred johnny rotten got in 77 would have been yeah. nothing like you know this yeah. would this was this was a nationwide playground wide workplace wide loathing that he was getting from a lot of people and you can sort mm, of yeah. sense that in this performance Yeah,
4: Yeah, Uh, and the two two things I would say uh, in his favour. First of all, um, I don't really think that it was a cop-out, that he was, uh, you know, kind of in the closet for a while and was not open about being gay. I don't blame him, you know, Um, because it was already a fever pitch of, uh, Mm. as you said. But also, um, yeah, it was very nice to see that confusion, which, you know... Would commonly result in violence, being turned to someone's advantage and mm. used as pop fodder, you know. Once again, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, don't don't get me wrong. It's, I'm not I'm not blind to uh, to all of that stuff, which is really good.
3: Mm. I mean, the the issue of smash hits previously, Culture Club were on the cover at the beginning of the interview. It was it was made clear that. The cover of that issue of Smash Hits was supposed to be Boy George and Kelvin out of Musical Youth, and the Musical Youth's record company uh, put the block on it. Right. So they said, "Wow." So already there was this, there was this awkwardness. Yeah. And, and yeah, you're right. There was, there was great hostility by certain people, but a lot more people bought the record.
2: Mm. I mean, the, the the sad thing about it all, in a sense, is that from that hostility. Nothing was won as such. Boy didn't mm. get a victory, in a sense. Mm. He was torn apart by both his own habits and, and the tabloids. And, and and, and yeah, a, a really grim story as it plays out. But um, yeah. the hostility by this stage was livid and real, most definitely. Even though it can only be communicated in this performance via the medium of yeah. balloons.
3: Yes, <laughs> yes. And, 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 of course, it doesn't help that the, the, the rest of the bands are... Are being given ken status i mean quite literally they 're all they 're all camouflaged up hmm.
2: and they're all they 're all being pushed into the background whether they like it or not and it's a shame in a sense i mean one wonders yeah one wonders whether you know open i mean of course it would have been absolutely unthinkable in eighty two for a gay band to get to the top of the charts or a song about a gay relationship and a a sort of, you know, outwardly known song about a gay gay relationship to get to the top of the charts. But one wonders that if they were allowed that, whether the turmoil Mm. and torment that came after wouldn't have happened and they would have just been okay. So do you really want to hurt me would
3: spend one more week at number one before being usurped by I don't want to dance. It will go on to be the fifth best selling single in the UK in 1982 between The Lion Sleeps Tonight and I Don't Want to Dance. And it got to number two for three weeks in America in March of 1983, held off the top spot by Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. And the follow up, Time, Clock of the Heart, got to number three in December of that year.
0: Listen, it's party night on top of the pop, so you lot get into the apples straight away. We'll see you next week. Have a great Halloween night. Meantime, get the heads in. Go on. Good night.
3: Bates, accompanied by four zoo wankers, signs off by getting them to bob for apples, plunging smug Dracula cunt's head beneath the water. <laughs> they all fail dismally to get an apple in their gob. Then they break off to dance to the final song of the night, I Wanna Do It With You by Barry Manilow. Born Barry Pincus in Brooklyn in 1943, Barry Manilow studied at the New York College of Music before working as a jingle writer and singer, appearing on adverts for McDonald's, Band-Aid, Kentucky Fried Chicken and Pepsi. In 1969, he was signed to Bell Records by its then Vice President, Tony Orlando, and recorded various tracks under the name Featherbed. In the first half of the 70s, he had a side job as Bette Midler's pianist during a stint at the Continental Baths, a gay bathhouse in New York that had its own STI clinic, police warning system, and a club which hosted the likes of the New York Dolls, Minnie Ripperton, the Pointer Sisters, Cab Calloway, Manhattan Transfer, and Elaine Stritch, and would become an on-tour musical director. Oh, man, the the gays of 1970s. Fantastic. They had everything. (laughs) He launched a solo career in 1973 to immediate success in the USA, but it wasn't until 1975 that he had his first chart hit in the UK when Mande got to number 11 in March of that year. He only had one more UK top 40 hit in the 70s, Could It Be Magic, which got to number 25, but by the turn of the decade he was becoming a proper housewife's choice over here, knocking out four top 40 hits on the trot from 1980 to the autumn of 1981 and releasing the LP Barry Live in Britain, which got to number one over here earlier this year. This is the follow-up to Stay, which got to number 23 in May of this year, and it's the second cut from the LP of the same name, which also features his covers of Some Girls by Ray Set. It. and it's up this week from number 13 to number 10. Yeah, I, I said earlier that the Halloween shit was over, but clearly not. It's so Blue Peter, that bit, isn't it?
4: Well, it is chilling to imagine having your head pushed underwater by Simon Bates, Mm. Yeah. Um, But what's so weird is he does it really briefly and then for a split second looks really confused and then literally runs away off screen. Yeah. And there's an uncharacteristically childlike spring to his movements when he does it. What Mm. it reminds me of, it's like he's finally gone mad. It's like the sort of awkward energy that you get when really straight people lose their fucking mind. (laughs) Uh, Quite disturbing to look at. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't recognise this song at first. No. Um, and I was, before the chorus came in, I was racking my brain thinking, what is this? Um, is it shaky? Um, and of course it's not shaky, but it might as well be, except that yeah. even shaky's heterosexual rock and roll was never bold enough to get right to the point, like the way Barry does here, <laughs> much to the delight <laughs> yeah. of me as a 10-year-old, right? Yeah. And my chief memory... <laughs> of this being a hit, is another episode of Top of the Pops where Peter Powell was doing the chart rundown and he came to this and he said, at number whatever it was, it's Barry Manilow with, I want to do it with you. Right, like <laughs> like he might have been referring to uh, joining a zomba class, you know, yes. <laughs> or, or, or going yes. conquer hunting. And I honestly <laughs> don't know if that was... Peter Powell's stupidity or a sort of prudishness, like a censorious Mm. prudishness. Um, But to his credit, Simon Bates, when he does the chart rundown this week, avoids that sort of cop-out and he just reads it out in the sort of dry, let's not have any sniggering tone of a sex education teacher.
3: Barry Manilow is down to fuck, as the, the youths would say. <laughs> the lyrics of the song clearly mean that he, he can't stop thinking about giving someone
2: a scene to. Yeah, but I mean... Shocking! Shocking! This is on Radio 2, for fuck's sake. Yeah, but the, the reason he gets away with it is because of this suffocating blandness he's of Barry the record. Manilow. Yeah, he's Barry Manilow. <laughs> Barry Manilow, it's interesting that he did a Racy cover on his latest album there. Because he... Cause, yeah. He has that amenability to the British audience, and and, and also Ooh. that not that foreboding kind of Americanness where you know we'd often feel with American artists that we were kind of beneath them and lucky to have yes. them to a certain extent. Yes. Barry, you never got that, um no. with Barry at all. Uh, but it's, uh, what an, this record, it's kind of it's, it 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 pootles along as it does, but it annoys me that the producers of, of Top of the Pops, and I think this comes back to what you were saying, out about, you know, this can't be a kids' show anymore. It's got to appeal to everybody, all age groups and stuff yeah. like that. They've surveyed the, you know, the the, the the chart of of this period of 1982, and this is what they've chosen to play out with. It just maddens yeah. me, because it's, it's a yeah. terribly bland record that the kids, yeah. who we finally get to see a few of, yeah. rather than just Sue Wankers, um, find it sort of difficult and slightly embarrassing to dance to. It has to be said we only get
3: about 30 seconds of it.
2: That's it, that's it. We're, we're, even the girl yeah. who's going absolutely batshit with the, with, the, with the sort of white sheet over her arm, mm. she's going fucking nuts. We only get to see her for like five seconds yeah. and it's a really bland kind of ending to the show because it's such a dreary record, really. Mm.
4: What you can say, though, in the same way that people in the 80s were seemingly blind to like obvious signifiers of, of homosexuality, for instance... -hmm. They also, you know, songs about drugs and stuff like that. You listen to it and it's like, well, it's obvious what this is about. They also seem Mm. to take everything at face value and not quite twig when someone was not taking themselves 100% seriously. Because at least half of Barry Manilow's career was Barry Manilow taking the piss. And you've got (laughs) all this stick from like the not nine o'clock news tendency for being a poser and for having a big nose, and for yes. being naff, as people said at the time, yeah. and for mm. singing tacky songs, like as if he wasn't aware of any of this, you know. Yeah, You yes. still get it now. A lot of people sort of like hear the lyrics to Bermuda Triangle, and they go, oh, that's terrible. Like as if that song <laughs> were not a brilliant camp joke right from the start. Yeah. Um, if you've ever seen the video for this song, um, it's got Barry sharing the stage with these backing singers. It's like two men and two women. And the men look like they're only there because they won a competition in like Nam- <laughs> Nambler's monthly newsletter. It's- <laughs> and he's not even trying to lip sync properly. And no. he's just mm. smirking all the way through it like he can't believe that hundreds of thousands of people think he's heterosexual and entirely yeah, yeah. sincere about what he does you know yeah. um
2: i've got a, yeah i like barry a lot um main reason yeah. being that he used to have a show on radio 2 um, in the afternoon on a Sunday, it was a few years ago. And in that, he demonstrated, that, like, you know, that list of names you read out, yeah. New York Dolls and the Lane Strix and all that. His grounding in that world is just immense, and his knowledge yeah. is immense. Yeah. And he knows his shit about music, Barry Manilow. He yeah. knows his stuff about an awful lot of great artists, and that really came across in his radio show. Mm. But of course, back then, yeah, all you knew was. Pretty much like what you knew about an awful lot of people. Rod Stewart had a big ass, and BG's had big teeth because Kenny Everett dominated yeah. the narrative <laughs> of what he knew about these people, you yes. know. So, yeah, Barry Manilow, Big Nose, and that was it. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I bet he's a, a great laugh, even now. Yeah. I bet he... I, imagine, imagine the three of us driving down to the south coast with Barry, blasting out a bit yeah. of music, you know, passing a joint around, shooting the shit... Imagine the story, (laughs) but he could make your hair curl, really. Yeah, yeah. So, and also, you've got to give some sort of credit to this song just as a statement of perfect simplicity not the music, but the lyrics. It's 90% of pop music just stripped down to its. Essential message.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So the following week, I want to do it with you. Nipped up two places to number eight and stayed there for two weeks—the highest position he would ever reach in the UK. "Copacabana" wasn't actually released as a single when it came out. When he was when he recorded it, that's insane. Really? Wasn't released until I believe the mid '90s.
2: Oh canal! How can we all knew it then? How can we all knew that song? The, yeah. the power of music. Yeah, I guess so. The power of parody, I guess. Yeah. The power of Kenny Everett maybe taking the piss out of it or something. Yeah, but we the, all knew the that The
3: power one. of man in love. <laughs> the follow-up, a cover of the 1935 Fats Waller tune, I'm Gonna Sit Right Down and Write Myself a Letter, would only get to number 36 in the final week of 1982, and bar a number 17 hit in December of 1983 with "Reedman Weep. Him and the charts were done. And despite rumours in the late 80s that he was knocking off the woman who played Debbie in Debbie Does Dallas, it was revealed in 2015 that Barry Manilow was gay, meaning he was singing this song at your dad. (laughs) So, what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One follows up with the first episode of the new series of Sorry, where Timothy Lumsden gets involved in a treasure hunt for a buried golden rabbit. Then the episode of Only Fools and Horses, where Del, Rodney and Grandad act as professional mourners for Trigger's Non-Ar. Then the 9 o'clock news, Tenko, Question Time with Neil Kinnock, Norman Fowler, Marge Proops and a rabbi and finishes off with Torval and Dean topping the bill at the Centival Gala of World Champions of Ice Dance. (laughs) BBC2 has got the violinist Ruggiero Ricci doing 45 minutes of Paganini's Caprices, then highlights from the snooker again, before piling into half an hour of unique observations of life from Kelly Monteith. Finally mentioned Kelly Monteith in chart music.
2: Yes, got to get Paul Hogan in eventually.
3: Definitely, yeah. (laughs) 40 minutes covers the closure of a school in Durham, then more snooker, news night, even more snooker, and then stays up until 2am to cover those by-election results. ITV is 30 minutes into the Robert Deval film The Great Santina, followed by TVI, News at 10, Hill Street Blues, something called Video Sounds... And then they stay up until 1am for the by-election. So, me boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow?
2: Probably, I'll probably be talking about wow. Culture Club. I'll probably be talking about Tears for Fears. I'll probably, mm. I think, I don't think, like, although I was easily pleased, I think I would be talking about the shitness of the Halloween theme of the episode. Yeah. yeah and how awful it all was. Um, yeah. Yeah.
3: Why didn't they have any bangers or anything?
2: And I think, you know, maybe I'll be talking about the Beatles being on it as well.
3: Ah. Yeah, everyone would have been laughing at
4: me for liking the Beatles. I don't doubt. (laughs) Because they are presented here some way short of their vibrant, blazing best. Uh, But yeah, that and Boy George blowing everyone's tiny minds. uh, Unless you live around Stamford Hill, in which case you've seen it all before. And what were we buying on Saturday? I bought Love Me Do, even though I already had it taped off my mm. auntie. Um, but it it felt like I was stepping out and becoming more adult, you know, by buying it myself yeah. on picture disc.
3: Yeah, becoming a consumer. Yeah, being an adult,
4: giving money to a big corporation for something I didn't
2: need. It felt <laughs> That you felt already great. had. Yeah. yeah. I'd have probably bought um, Mad World uh, because... As a little horrible cunt, it would have spoken to me. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, it's it's a little whiny, annoying person. Yeah, I probably would have bought Mad World.
3: Yeah. And what does this episode tell us about October of 1982?
2: Well, where's New Pop? Where's New Pop? Yeah. Where's it gone? Um, I guess Mm. the trick of New Pop is now being applied to music like reggae. So these things are getting into charts of pop. But yeah. Um, I know 80, is 82 is often seen as a zenith and a high point. Um, yeah. But Or at least a tailing off of a golden yeah. era. And I think this is... Tailing off, I think that's the key phrase. Um, mm. You know, especially with this episode, you're getting a reassertion, I guess, of, of adulthood, of adult pop. So you've got Dionne Warwick and you've got Barry and, and things like that. So... Yeah, what it says about 82 in the wider world, Gould only knows, probably not a lot. What it says about pop is that, as ever, what every episode says, it's more of a mixed bag than you think. Mm.
4: Yeah, if you, if you knew nothing about October 1982, and this was all you had to go on, you'd think that it, it was terrifying <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and full of people over 35. Yeah,
3: yeah. We can only cover this episode... Uh, at this time of year so I was more into that than the actual music I mean if I had have cast my eye looking for a n- new episode to cover and settled on the looked at the track listing for this I, I probably would have given it a miss <laughs> but uh, yeah I think Simon Bates um, he, he, he he pulls this episode out of his arse <laughs> and, and if they'd have done that I mean they had the video trickery at the time <laughs> if they could have done that that would have been truly terrifying yeah So that is the end of this episode of Chart Music. All that remains for me to do now is the usual promotional flange. And I'm still going to say WWW. I don't care. I'm setting me ways. Website www.chart-music.co.uk. You can get us on Facebook, facebook.com slash chartmusic. And you can reach us on Twitter, chartmusictotp. Thank you ever so much, Taylor Parks. Cheers. Welcome back, Neil oh, Kulkarni. cheers, my dear. My name's Al Needham. Don't have nightmares.
1: Sharp <laughs> music. So to our last item, you know,
0: even monsters have to have a night off. And when there's a full moon, what better than to go to a disco? The fun's just about to start, so let's join... uh, 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 Boris Saville. (laughs) Hi there, guys and gals, and welcome to Top of the Chops. (laughs) Hello, mommy. But now let's take a look at the Transylvanian top five. Ah, yes, creeping in at number five. It's Gonzilla Black with anyone who had a heart. At number four, Engelbert Humperdinck with Please Defreeze Me, Let Me Go. And at three, it's Fangs Ain't What They Used To Be by Count Dracula. Ah, and at number two, after still hanging in for 25 years, it's rigor mortis with, I'll dismember you. That then dies and gals. But now it's this week's number one, backing by Body Holloway and the Snatchers. It's top of the chops. It's Frank Trapp and the hairy monster with, Happy Birthday,
1: Frankenstein. <laughs> La la
0: la 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 la, -la -la happy birthday Frankenstein. La 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 la, -la happy birthday Frankenstein. Tonight's the night we've waited for. Because you're not in bits and pieces anymore. You turn into the nastiest monster we have seen. Happy birthday, Frankenstein! Jumby doo wop, You are the ones that I adore. Hey. You make a party
3: swing with lots of blood and gore. You built me up with bits left over from your car. Dear, we're wolf and Dracula. Jumby doo wop, growl.
0: When I was first switched on, our friendship was electric! When they screwed on your head, the bolts they used were metric. I still remember the bodies they dismembered. Now he's made up, he's no longer laid up. Look at him, now he's fully assembled. What happened to that funny face? Your thanks, your face, your Hang down, it's of place! <laughs> <stretetilli> we think you're just the tops The <laughs> worst we've ever seen Happy birthday, Frankenstein Here we go! la 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 Happy birthday, Frankenstein
1: la 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 la
0: Now then Now then Dave Lee, Travis and and Mike Reed Come on, I was going to say Rolf Harrison, Cliff Richard But no way
3: do you (laughs) look like
1: Cliff Richard today
4: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway Like European Linen